0: I'm David Smith. To round off our Hellraiser retrospective, myself and Alistair are delighted to share this special feature length interview with effects legend Gary J. Tunnicliffe. Gary has worked on every single Hellraiser since the third in some capacity, meaning he's done as many as Doug Bradley himself. He's a dead interesting guy, he's had a hell of a career is also refreshingly as blunt as he is passionate about the franchise for this reason there's nobody we would rather round off our coverage with please note we have some sound issues since we're connecting scotland to romania but i think what he says will be well worth the occasional hiss in your ear enjoy so much for coming on the horror cult films podcast with us today thank you very much it's my pleasure to be here so i think i was wondering how does a young guy growing up in staffordshire england end up going on to do special effects for some massive hollywood
1: films uh, <laughs> you have to beat people to death and lie and <laughs> make your way and be mean and evil and underhand and all that kind of stuff um, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is going to, has been said before in various other places, so I'll try and mix it up a little bit. Um, I, I was, uh, I had, I was, I wanted to be an actor, and um, and my dad said, "That's great. If you want to be an actor, he said, you can come to work with tomorrow with me and act like an electrician all day long." <laughs> and, uh, so they wouldn't have any of it, even though I had teachers kind of vying for me. And then I figured, if you can't be an actor, then I'll be a singer in a rock band because that was the '80s, and you know, rock, I was uh, into heavy metal. And uh, I was in various bands that were doing okay, but it just was going nowhere. And I was at a drummer's house, a good friend of mine, Craig Edgerton, and he he had a copy of Fangoria, which I'd never even heard of. And suddenly I saw this magazine, and I loved horror films. I'd always loved horror films. I mean, you know, growing up in England, um, you know, my my, uh, parents' way of kind of keeping me in line was, you know, do I get to watch the Hammer horror film on a Friday night? And if I was good all week, I could watch it. And if I was bad, then I couldn't. So, I mean, I... I grew up watching all the classics, you know, um, and uh, and and I'm sure as most twelve year olds growing up at that time, I got my first uh, view of naked women as well in various kind of like, you know, I remember I remember kind of you know I'd sit watching these movies at eleven o'clock at night, twelve o'clock at night in England on a Friday night, and my dad would be asleep or had gone to bed saying you're okay watching this, They're like being ten or eleven years old and. You know, Twins of Evil being on and being like, good Lord, look at this. This is amazing. You know, you know, the the devil, right? You know, just, you know, whatever you know, uh, Witchfinder kind of movie was on. So I got my titillation and my horrific stuff very early on with that kind of stuff. So um, cut forward to years later friend of mine's got a copy of Fangoria. I opened this magazine and I'm like, what the hell is this thing? And he's like, ah, it's a magazine in America called Fangoria. And it was the first time I realized or I kind of made a connection. I'd always understood about special effects, but I hadn't made a connection between makeup effects. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I kind of, I don't know, I just didn't realize it was a job. You know, it was kind of something you could actually do. And then when I opened the pages of this magazine, everybody who seemed to be doing makeup effects, because Fangoria really focused on makeup effects at the time, seemed to have long hair and be wearing a heavy metal t-shirt. And uh, and I was like, Oh, clearly this is the thing to get into. So literally that night I kind of went home and I said, Do you have any more of these magazines? And you have like hundred and fifty of them. So oh. I or a couple of or like eighty of them and I, I took them all and read them and with and I'm a voracious reader anyway. So within two days I knew who Rick Baker was and Rob Boutine and And, you know, all these bits, Stan Winston and Tom Savini and everyone else. And then just kind of consumed it and then um, was like, how do I do this? And really started off just doing it for fun, just kind of sculpting and making characters for fun. And then, uh, you know, um, got a copy of the Dick Smith makeup, book, you know, know, how to do monster makeup and started practicing on my sister and and basically started to build a little portfolio and got better and better and better at it. Uh, You know, this was about when I was like 13, I was like 14, 15 Uh, So by the time I was 16 or 17, I was pretty, you know, getting pretty decent at it. And um, and then, you know, and I started reading, uh, you know, I'd read Stephen King, but then I started reading Clive Barker and started reading uh, his stuff and just kind of fell in love with that straight away. And when Hellraiser came out, I mean, I literally went to the Kammock classic cinema in, you know, and uh, and had my mind blown and literally had an epiphany where I kind of stared at the screen and said, who did that? I want to do that. And, you know, and I want to be doing that makeup and basically kind of put a plan into action to have that happen. So the rest of it then was just uh, was hard work and kind of um, pushing my way, uh, you know, to get an interview at that studio, uh, Image Animation. And Bob Keane very graciously gave me a job. They just finished Hellbound, I think, um, and uh, and kind of like started my tenure there. You know, And within a year we were doing Hellraiser 3. I saw that
0: you did uh, something called She Wolf of London back in 1990. So was
1: that kind of like part of the portfolio, of, you know, here's what I've done in the past? Uh, no. Uh, the way I got the job was I, I actually um, I went to work for a guy called Chris Tucker, who I don't know if you know who Christopher Tucker is. Chris Tucker did The Elephant Man and the uh, and uh, Phantom of the Opera and stuff like that. And Chris is a complete psychopathic lunatic. Um, and uh, And I went to work for him and basically stayed at his house, he had this mansion in Reading, uh, and I mean a mansion, a mansion. Uh, and uh, there was me and a couple of other guys working there, literally like, uh, you know, Dickensian schoolboys, kind of like, you know, not being able to eat and stuff and working seven-day weeks and just being miserable as sin and uh, living in this kind of like very bizarre world. And I lasted about three or four months before one day I literally, after a, a, an event occurred. Literally kind of said, you know, fuck this and walked out the front door and um, grabbed a foam latex piece. I'd ran with me and I called up Image Animation the next day. Uh, once I got home back to Birmingham, kind of got on train, got back to Birmingham, had some food. My mother said sort I of looked like a grey waif. And um, I called Bob Bob up, and uh, I said, hi, my name's Gary Tuncliffe. I said, uh, I've just been working at Chris Tucker's and he went oh how long we what was like how long were you at Chris Tucker's and I said about three four months and he went you can start work Monday if you like and I said really and he went yeah anyone who can survive more than a week at Chris Tucker's <laughs> can come and work for me and I did and um I I kind of got down to London and suddenly found myself not only at the studio who'd done the Horizon movies but I found myself part of a group of guys who were all the same age and all basically had the same kind of um Background and experiences of me. Surprisingly, a lot of them were from north, uh, up north as well, from Liverpool and, and and Lancashire and and places like that, and Grimsby, and um, all of the same age group, all had the same kind of fan, all had the same kind of backgrounds, and uh, we were like a brotherhood. And it was it was literally like Midian. I'd kind of found a home for monsters. And ironically enough, or not ironically enough, and uh, naturally enough, most of them have gone on to huge things in the uh, in the in the movie industry. You know, people like. Mark well, Coulier, who's won two Oscars, uh, Dave Elsie, who won an Oscar for Wolfman, uh, Stephen Norrington, who directed Blade, uh, Chris Halls, who went on to become known as uh, Chris Cunningham, um, Sean Harrison, who has a make-and-fix studio and did the Harry Potter movies. Uh, you know, I mean, they've all, uh, the, the talent level there was was unbelievable. Martin Mercer, who's now one of the top uh, storyboard artists in Los Angeles, and worked on Lord of Illusions. And uh, uh, most of those things. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was pretty incredible, pretty incredible to suddenly find myself there with those guys. Uh, but also at the same time as being great fun, it was also a very um, a very tenacious environment, very. Um, uh, you had a kind of fight to be there, you know, you know. what I mean. I mean, literally, remember being there the first week and them sitting down and kind of grilling me about makeup effects and uh, I had to who did the effects on this and who did that and what year did they do this and that kind of thing. And if you didn't, if you didn't know your stuff, you were you were ousted very quickly, you know.
0: And so, did you then move off to live in America permanently at that point, or what would be what you thought would be permanent at the time?
1: Um, I'd been at uh, Image about three years. I'd moved my way up to the ranks very quickly at Image. Um, I had a knack for uh, supervision and for organization because I'd I'd had previous jobs. And a lot of the guys there were kind of art student graduates and stuff like this, whereas I'd actually been out in the real world since I was 16 and had various real jobs. So I had a knack for supervision. I remember I'd been there about three months and Bob Keen pulled me into the office and said, you're going to end up running this place. He said, I can't let you do it now. (laughs) But uh, he said, there'll be a riot, but you'll run it eventually. So uh, when the guys went to do uh, Hell on Earth, Hell on Earth, they went on set in Carolina. I stayed in uh, in, in, in England and prepped Candyman, um, and started to get a knack for kind of like being able to organise the crews. And then what happened was um, over the years, both I and Bob made a plan to open a company in Los Angeles. So after three years, we did that. Uh, and I always wanted to be in LA. My my sole agenda was to get to America. I wanted to work amongst my peers. And, uh, you know, I love England, I do, but I, I've always felt that Makeup Perfection is a very American art form. And, and I wanted to work alongside, I wanted to be in, in the Valley in LA and find myself and kind of pit myself against the KMBs and the grad cams and the ADIs and everyone else and try, and try and hold my end up there. So in 1990. Uh, 1994. I moved out to LA the day before the earthquake. The day before the earthquake, I moved to LA. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a bit of a shocker. But and uh, and I've been there ever since. Been there ever since.
0: You know, and w- when you come to Hell on Earth, obviously you're going in as a fan of the series. So I imagine that first, I imagine that was really fucking cool working on working on the series that you liked for a start, but. But what was your role at that point quite a creative one? Because Hellraiser's got a very particular aesthetic
1: to it, and I'm wondering if from the get-go you were sort of creating Cenobites. No, no, no. I was uh, I was way too lowly to be creating Cenobites. Mm. Um, no. uh, the way it worked image animation in those days were kind of people were given uh, choice tasks and allowed to kind of do their own thing. So... Um, Paul Jones who has who had an effects company in Canada for a long time but he's working back in England Paul Jones was one of the senior technicians there he went on to do, he he got pinhead he was he was given pinhead and he was given camera head um Marc who did who's recently done you know uh, everything from um uh, the Stan, uh, the, the Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel movie and uh, Margaret Thatcher and, uh, you know, Hotel Budapest, kind of one of the greatest old age makeup artists on the, on the planet now. He did the female Cenobite. Uh, but I did design the gloves for that. I suggested the idea of the opera gloves for the female in that. And then Dave Elsie did the J.P. Monroe Cenobite. And which other Cenobites are there? Oh, and then the the two... The two Cenobites, which weren't Cenobites, and they were never in the script, Barbie and CD, they were supposed to be just victims in the bar. Um, and Martin Mercer sculpted these two really cool masks. Um, and then when they got out there, Tony Hickox decided they needed more Cenobites. So literally the guys took the masks and then were going down to like local stores and buying anything that was black and leather. They were going to pet shops and buying dog leashes and chains to make Cenobite costumes for Barbie and uh, CD. I can't believe you <laughs> forgot about CD at first. They were, just, they were made up. If you remember, because the, they were just supposed to be victims in the bar. They were supposed <laughs> to be the barman who gets wrapped up in barbed wire and uh, the DJ gets hit with some CDs and killed. So those were in the script, but then they became turned into pseudo-Cinobots, as they called them.
0: I guess, was that kind of up the scale for the New York scene at the end, I take it?
1: Yeah, that yeah. was the idea. was make it bigger. And then Paul Catling, um, brilliant Paul Catling, uh, he did The Pillar of Souls. And then uh, my responsibility chiefly was the box. Uh, so I made all the boxes on that. And then I was kind of supervising the shop. So I was making sure people had, you know, the schedules were being adhered to and kind of things were getting made and organising crew and hiring people. In fact, it was quite funny because um, Bob was out of the country at the time when we were prepping Hellraiser Hell on Earth. And I hired, uh, was it afterwards or before, I hired Dave Olsey and I hired. Uh, I hired a bunch of the guys who worked on Hellraiser One because I kind of had an affinity for them because of, you know, kind of being a fan of the first movie, but those guys hadn't worked at Image for a long time. So I had people like uh, uh, Will Petty and uh, Stewie Conner and people who were, uh, who'd worked on the first film. So, so Hellraiser 3, I was just, I was a, I was a guy in the shop doing the Hellraiser boxes and kind of supermarket and organizing the shop and the crew. And luckily Dave Keen, Bob's brother, who uh, did all of the kind of like uh, practical effects. He, he, he said, look, you know, you've done a great job. We should give you a uh, workshop supervisor credit. So, on that movie, I'm credited as a workshop supervisor. Uh, and then we went and did the reshoots, and I had a much bigger involvement in the reshoots.
2: Just to follow up on the Cenobites that you've been working with, I know as the series progressed, you would have, uh, I think, more input on them. Oh, since like,
1: 4, I've designed every Cenobite. Ah, After 4, what, I designed everything.
2: What I've always liked is that, obviously, we have the the original four Cenobites, mm-hmm. and there's something very special about them, but obviously the way that the series went with three onwards, what I do appreciate is that it, it opens up creatively to introduce sort of new Cenobites uh, per movie. And with some of the Cenobites that you've created, do you want to talk a little bit about them and which ones maybe your favourites?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the desire to do big things with Cenobites is huge, but you can't do it sometimes because of budget um and sometimes you're kind of limited by what's written in a script like i remember you know peter atkins who uh you know my my great friend peter atkins who wrote obviously hellbound and hell on earth and bloodline uh, he kind of served me a a high and a low on bloodline because he he wrote a siamese twin center which is like oh what a nightmare because immediately you think i want to do kind of a twisted head together thing but you can't you have to do two people standing next to each other so it's always going to look like two guys kind of standing together.
2: To ask quickly on that one, was your inspiration for that, was it the, um, the Sock and Boschkin theatre masks? Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah I thought
2: absolutely so. Absolutely it, right. it had, had that look happy, to it.
1: The happy and sad theatre masks, exactly. Which are ironic, and again, strangely enough, those were uh, sculpted by me, Kevin Yeager, but also uh, Stephen Norton. Stephen Norton ended up sculpting on those. So uh, the director of Blade uh, sculpted on those as well yeah um but yeah they were I, I did i went for the kind of like the happy the happy and sad masks but the one i was most happy with was uh was angelique and um mm. the funny thing about that was the, the design wasn't very specific in the script but um i just wanted a very cool i had a thing for kind of like cool sexy looking feminine uh cenobites i always think they're looking mm-hmm. cool so uh oddly enough i got the idea for her um uh, and this has been written and heard about before but um, I came in and my girlfriend was watching Sister Act on TV, mm. and uh, and I was looking at a, a nun's whip. You know, is it a whipple? They call it you know, in like the the nun's headdress yeah. shape there. And I thought if we peeled the skin back and then put wires down to her shoulders, it would look kind of cool. So I I did a little napkin drawing and then I whizzed it over to my friend Miles Tevis, who's a fantastic designer who designed things like RoboCop and uh, Legend for Rob Boutine or with Rob Boutin and a beautiful artist. And, uh, and he did this beautiful rendering and we showed that to Kevin Yeager and uh, he was like, yeah, that's fantastic. Go ahead and do it. So, uh, yeah, I'm very, very proud of uh, Angelique. I think she looks cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she does. Uh, I, what, my, my, one of my personal favorites is this and not seen. It got cut. Uh, and it's one I played. It's the Spike Cenobite. And uh, I love Spike. And uh, I just wanted to do something really, really big and wacky. So
2: You know, I, in my notes, that is one of my questions for you was about the Spike Cenobite. Because it's such it. a striking visual. It right, really is.
1: It? it is. And I just wanted, I said to the guys, I'm going to sculpt, I'm going to wear it. I ended up wearing it. but I, I, And it was really, it was a nightmare to wear because you bang into stuff. But I said, I just <laughs> want one of those. I was like the idea of center bike design that sometimes um, there are a lot of questions in your head, like, what on earth is going on mm-hmm. there? Or how does that work? You know, I think sometimes if a design is just too uh, in the box, it's like, oh yeah, I, I can see exactly what I'm getting. Whereas I think Spike always, is one of those yeah. that always gets a second look and like, what am I looking at here? So uh,
2: I think um, I had all those questions about the torso chatterer.
1: Yeah. And torso, well, torso was a weird one because um I just always want to get Chatterer back into the movie, and in uh, mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Inferno, they they Chatterer wasn't in there at all, and there was these two sexy females, and I again took my love of Angelique and kind of pushed it to the next stage and did the mm-hmm. Wire twins, um, but Scott Derrickson had got this sequence in the script where basically it said. You know, he's running down the stairs and the, the two females are behind him. And then he something, he just said in the script like something horrendous comes up the stairs and scares him to death. And they wanted like a spider creature or something. Um, or It was just written very dodgily. And I saw a design and it was like, yeah, dear, oh, dear. And we had no money. My entire budget for the effects on Hellraiser Inferno, including on set work, was $50,000, which was nothing. Wow. Uh, I actually did. I actually didn't get paid a penny to work on that movie. I didn't get paid a penny. Wow. Um, uh, when I did it and I did the budget and they said, we've got $50,000. Do you want to do it or not? And I said, yeah, I do. Cause I love Hellraiser. I'm an idiot. And uh, <laughs> I said to my, I said to my girlfriend at the time who ran the studio with me, I said, uh, we're doing this and I'm not getting paid. And she's like, well, how are we going to do it? And I said, well, we'll pay the crew and we'll pay the bills. And I think it'll get me back in with dimension. And I, I don't want to lose Hellraiser. So, we had to do this creature and they wanted something. And I was just like, Oh, you know, this is, how do you do something? And, um, I don't know. I was driving back from the meeting thinking about it. And I just remember thinking if you were to put your hands like on a table, like in a press up position. And if we painted his body black and did it in the dark and, and I could do a chatter, I could kind of like do a homage to chatter, and he could come crawling up the stairs. It's cheap, simple, effective. And, um, I spoke to the digital guy who was doing the film and he said, yeah, we can do that really easily. And, uh, uh, Scott was actually really kind of not into it at all but I did the drawing and they liked it and again I think it's a really striking image I think it worked out really really well and also Chatterer again he's one of my favourites and and it was the first time I got to put Mike Regan who's uh, one of my shop guys and a, my best friend and he has played Chatterer ever since Mike has so so yeah, I alright. would say I think I think Chatter is a, torso chatter is cool. Um I like the Y twins I love. I think the Y twins are very cool. They were they were a difficult makeup to do, but yeah. um they're fun. Angelique I really love. Uh I can't say the auditor because he's not a Cenobite. Cent- so otherwise <laughs> I would I'd put the auditor in there, but he's not a Cenobite, technically. Um I mean even the... Uh, I mean, like, you know, even the stitch—a uh, stitch which I got to make as the stitchman later on. But I mean, mm-hmm. I like—I uh, kind of like—he um, was originally called Manson but we called him the Surgeon later on. So they're all—they're all, they're all special in my mind. But I do—I do miss Spike. I think Spike was kind of a a fun design. It's uh, a
2: shame yeah. that one didn't make the final cut.
1: Yeah. But I get so many people come up yeah. to me and say they like it. I've seen tattoos of it and people, which is always really, really cool. So you, you know it's a strong image when people uh, will scour uh, the, the deleted scenes or, uh, you know, mm. and I do, I've got no idea why Rick cut it out of the film. I've got no idea at all. I've got no idea what he was thinking because to me it was like one shot, it did no harm and it was like yeah. just uh, it's pure, you know, uh, pure value, production value. So it would. it?
2: I would say to compliment your point that it would certainly give the Cenobites that uh, mystique about what are they really and reintroduce, I suppose, uh, the mystery behind them. Yeah. Which I, think, I think a couple films have sort of taken that away and sort of discovering the box and that uh, the Cenobites used to be people, which was effectively done in Hellraiser 2. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: you, have to re- you have to remember that, that down the pipe, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of well documented that the films were, uh, you know, were other movies that were shoehorned into Hellraiser. And uh, the difficult thing I constantly found being involved with all of the sequels pretty much was that nobody really gave a shit about the fact that they were Hellraiser or understood mm. the mythology or cared about the mythology. So um, a lot of the time I was like, you know, it was like, we need to do this or we need to honor that or they should look this way and, yeah. you know, uh, they should have some emblems of humanity and everyone would be like, why? And you go, because that's the myth, that's the, the myth, guys. You know what I mean? That's the law. Yeah. Um. And, and directors along the way trying to change it or try to fight it. I mean, there were things that Scott did. I mean, I, I actually really like uh, Inferno. I do like Inferno. Um, and Scott's clearly a very talented director, as as is obvious by the work he's done since. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he, I think he's not restricted by it. I think he'd like to have just done a, a solid, you know, uh, Inferno movie on his own with some strange, bizarre imagery. And Rick Bota, um Rick, Rick was always trying to. Uh, Rick's a lovely guy, and a very funny guy, and a very competent kind of technical director. But he was always kind of like. I felt like he was he was replicating rather than innovating. So he always mm-hmm. just wanted to do Joel Peter Witkin stuff. And and uh, it was all about the weird moment kind of thing. And uh, I just never thought he captured it, really. Yeah, I think uh, I'd
2: agree with that, yeah.
0: We were talking he, he about was, this in, in the last episode about Rick, Rick Bota, where he seems to be able to do these like almost like music video sequences, uh, which look, where you've got some really striking images in them. I think uh, that he seemed to prioritize that over the story a lot. But when he was doing these sorts of sequences, was it quite a good collaboration
1: that you guys had going? Oh, I loved Rick and got on really, really well. And he's a really, he's a sweet guy, and a funny guy. Um, I just think he was regarded by Dimension that he delivered the goods and kind of like did it on time and wasn't hard to work with. And what he wasn't like a, a crazy, maverick, creative, like I want it this way. I think he was just doing the job. Um, I mean, a good example, and uh, this might sound like I'm blowing smoke at my own butt. Have you seen No More Souls? The short I did. I um, have not. I've heard. I've heard about this. Is it on YouTube at the moment? It's on YouTube. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube, and it's on. Uh, it's on the special features. It's hidden actually on Dead. It's uh, you have to unlock the puzzle box, and you will get to see it on there. Ah. It's like a little tip if you have to kind of like you have to highlight the box in the special features, and you can get it. But it's on. It's on YouTube.
2: This was your stint as Pinhead. I think I've seen that, but it was a while back now.
1: Yeah, well, it was. I came back from Hellworld, and Hell, we did Hell, Head data and Hellworld, and I came back very depressed, especially after Hellworld. I was really miserable because I thought Hellworld was pretty abortionate. And I came back, and that, I was like, that's it, guys. I said, I'm never going to get to direct the Hellraiser because I've been trying to push for it for a while and, uh, and had some strong ideas. And my crew said, why don't you do a short? We'll help you. And I was like, mm, that's not a bad idea. And this is way before kind of fan film. So, I uh, I wrote a short that weekend, a little six minute kind of soliloquy. And then uh, we built a set and I rented a, a high definition camera for $2,000. And I did nothing about operating a camera. Um, but I read the manual. I was in the online forums the night before. And because I'm English, I was in, I was the only English person in that crew. I was like, well, I'll play Pinhead. You know, I can wear the costume, the makeup will work on me, and I can do an English voice. And, you mm. know, I didn't want Pinhead to be American. I couldn't hire actors. It was just a. It was like a little fan project. But as I made it, um, I, I made it and finished it. And then I showed the footage to Patrick Lussier, who directed uh, you know, Dracula 2000 and Drive Angry and uh, My Bloody Valentine. And Patrick is a brilliant editor who did the screen movies. And he watched the footage and said, hey, I can edit this together for you if you like. And I was like, that would be great. So I gave it to him. And then he showed it to uh, to um, Kirk uh, kirk mori who's now james wand's editor <laughs> hmm. and kirk saw it and was like hey do you want to hand on post-production supervision and i was like yeah great can you and then henning loner who did the music on dead i said do you want me to do the music for it so everyone started jumping in and helping out and, and i made this little short and rick Boter actually came to my shop about hmm. two two months after i'd finished it and i hadn't done anything with it i don't you know, you couldn't put stuff on the internet at that time. So I, I showed it to Rick. I was like, hey, look at this. I just did this silly little Hellraiser short. And Rick stood there and watched it. And his first question was, who who, who lit this? This is really nicely lit. And I was like, I lit it using, you know, uh, work lights with cookies on. But he said, that he, at the end of it, he said, I think you captured more Hellraiser tone in your six-minute short than I ever did in three movies. <laughs> he said, you should direct these movies. He said, not me. And um yeah, it was a weird thing. So it was very frustrating because I, I love Rick and he's a nice guy. He is I can't I can't stress this enough. I, if I was gonna hang out and have a drink with somebody, Rick Bautre would be one of those guys that I would do it in a heartbeat. But I don't know if he was the right guy for uh for Hellraiser. Um because I think he just kind of like uh he was just kind of he was just kind of I think Deader was his, the best of the three that he did. I thought Deader was the best movie he, put, he did.
2: You know? Of his three, I, I do agree that this is my uh, personal favourite as well. I was
1: a healthier man myself, but he's a deader guy. We, bo- <laughs> we both, we
0: both, we both uh, see Hell World as being the, uh,
2: the weakest one. Yeah. Um, Those three films, I mean, they do strike me as almost remakes of Hellraiser Inferno.
1: Yeah.
2: Like, all three of them do strike me that way.
1: Dead I mean uh Hellseeker I think benefited obviously because we got you got Ashley involved and that mm-hmm. was really cool. mm-hmm. And it was very cool to be on the set with uh, Ashley and Doug and uh with the little kind of Cenobite face I've seen that was like you got chills and that it was like oh look yeah, at this is great um Dead uh, I thought Dead was a was the film that Rick really prepared for kind of knew what he wanted and really did some work on it and uh and was really in kind of like gnawing, you know, really kind of had yeah. a, a, an idea of what he was doing. Hellworld, you have to understand, Hellworld was thrown together at the last minute. It really was. We, yeah. uh, we didn't have a full script until like oh two week, a week before. Uh we yeah. were prepping we were prepping effects that were not in the that were never seen. Um and it all just got a bit I mean, I was never in love with the initial concept of it anyway. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, the only good thing about that was the cast were, were a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, we had Lance yeah. and Henry was so young and uh, Carrie was fun and and Catherine Winnick was amazing. I mean, the one thing about dimension always working with dimension is they, uh, uh, you know, whoever the casting people were at dimension, they had a real eye for talent. Um, mm-hmm. If you go back and look at Hellraiser movies, you know, people like Adam Scott in uh, in Bloodline, you know, who then went on to become this huge comedic kind of actor in, in a force and you look at even Hellworld and there's Henry Cavill who became mm-hmm. obviously Henry Cavill, but Catherine Winnicott, yeah. who also had a huge career as well. So, I mean, um, yeah, you know, they always had, they always had good, uh, good cast. And, uh, that was that, that was, that was one thing that was good. But, um, but I was really mega depressed after, after Hellworld. I was like, yeah. that's probably the last one we'll ever do. And what a way to go out. And I thought it was absolute travesty <laughs> that, um, that that Doug Bradley, who established this wonderful character, this brilliant character with nuanced performance and these fantastic romantic lines that we all know and Mm -hmm. love, you know, your suffering were legendary even in hell and oh no tears please it's a waste of good suffering and all that right his last line on camera ever uttered oh fuck yeah Yeah. how's that for a wake-up call i mean it's literally like a fucking ken dodd line i have by Jove, this is how's that for a wake-up
2: call i mean it is freddy krueger at most
0: so yeah, it was, yeah like Penny was never meant to be Freddy Krueger, and that's like a, a bad Freddy
1: line, you know. It's a horrible, horrible line. I remember when I was trying to get dug on Judgment. I think I was like, "Don't you want to say something better? Have, it, have your, you know, your legacy be something yeah. better than." How's that for a wake-up call? Although I am proud of the fact that I am the Cenobite who cut... Who, I'm one of the Cenobites who's slinging the blade and chopping uh, Lance in half, so that's my one. Wa- I'm the fat one. Whatever. So, uh, you know, I'm the... I, that was one fun bit about it. Was that, We know,
2: do have a question about that scene, because uh, obviously with Hellworld, it's only really a Hellraiser film during the epilogue, where technically uh, Lance Henriksen opens the box, and then the Cenobites come. So it's like the last five minutes. Now it's a Hellraiser film. In that scene, when Lance Henriksen's getting diced in, in half, cleaved, and his top half is lying there, and we see the effect, like his insides and the blood and that fact, just that design of his, um, his corpse there, was that an homage to Bishop from Aliens? Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. The,
1: the, the concept of the death was my idea anyway because uh, it was like how are we going to kill him and I said uh, you know let's let's have two Cenobites come in with big kind of blades on chains and I said we can chop him in half here and they were like why like that you know again it's one of these things with producers who <laughs> who have no concept of horror I'm like we're going to cut him right across here and they're like why and I'm like because he's Bishop dude you know and they're like bishop and i'm like oh fucking you know and lance is like hey that's fucking cool yeah we'll do that that'll be that'll be awesome brother you know yeah. so he got it you know lance got it but it was like yeah it was totally supposed to be you know it was totally a homage to to the great bishops anyway. yeah when, he, when, he,
2: when? so i was just gonna say he definitely elevated that film uh, i love his line if you need anything just scream
1: yeah oh lance is I've, I've, I've got to say i've worked with lance on a bunch of things and he's just uh he's fantastic i mean the way mm-hmm. we got him into uh hell world was because we were actually in romania shooting uh mimic mimic 3.
2: Um, Oh, he was in that
1: yeah and lance was in that and lance was in the casino where lance spent a lot of time in the casino and uh and rick Boter came over and said uh, you know hey you know is lance still here and i was like yeah absolutely you know and um he's like, I think I want him to play the one character in uh, mimic. So uh, he got talking to Lance, but I remember my first ever meeting with Lance was I went into the, uh, there was a, a, we were staying in a beautiful hotel in Bucharest called the uh, Marriott Grand, which is a fantastic hotel. It's like one of the top hotels in Europe and our producer, Ron Schmidt had got an amazing deal. So we're all staying in this beautiful palatial hotel on this low budget film. But um, I went into a, they had a bar there called champions, like a sports bar and there's Lance Henriksen sitting there having a beer. And, and me and uh, my guys, we kind of went over and said, "Hey, Lance, we're going to be working with you doing the effects." He's like, "Hey, guys, sit down, and have a beer," and then we just sat down and we spent about three hours with him, and he went through his entire career. You know, we did stuff. We were doing Omen lines, you know, lines from the Omen Two and the right stuff, and just everything. He went through his entire career. We talked about every movie he'd ever done, and uh, about Cameron and Aliens, and uh, yeah, it was just it was a fantastic day. And we came, we became firm friends after that. I've, uh you know i keep in touch with lance actually lance has a lance has a pottery company we did called screaming red ass pottery and uh, <laughs> he, uh yeah, he's a character and uh he uh yeah. he did another film afterwards like a little boxing movie and uh he's like you know would you help out and do this boxing makeup and i said yeah sure and uh he said how much and i said one of your plates, that one there and he said hey man you're, you're sure and i was like yeah absolutely now lance is uh lance is amazing and i'm so thrilled that um, he's just done. He you know, did this film a couple of years ago with. Um, um, I've just had a complete brain fart, but he's just done this movie where he plays like a, you know a, a like a really cool dramatic role where he's playing a father, you know, like a you know a you know a father son relationship in a movie. And I was like, ah, oh, and it talks about you know Oscar potential for that. And it's like, yeah, Lance deserves it, because he's a phenomenal actor and a really really nice guy.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like you see his work mm-hmm. and stuff like Millennium, you know, and you just like, wouldn't recognize him, but he's usually not the leading man in these things.
1: Well, it was a while when Lance became known as the $200,000 man, because you could get him in a movie for $200,000. <laughs> like, you know, like that, that was the easiest thing in the world. So, uh, you know, uh, and he's just like, hey, man, I'll, you know, I can get a paycheck. Um, so, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, phenomenal actor, phenomenal actor, and a thoroughly entertaining guy as well. Mm-hmm.
0: When you're on the set of
1: some something like uh, like Hell World, where it's,
0: it's none of us his favourite movie in the series, let's put it that way. Um, well, I know nobody sets out to make a bad film, but like, what's the kind of atmosphere like on set? Because I, ima- I imagine people don't really know what it's going to look like till it till it's ready. But you know, it's for kind of like also a feeling that it's being rushed while it was being made. So I understand it was made because you had to make two films in Bucharest.
1: Yeah, they were sort of back-to-back. No, absolute optimism. And we had a very young, enthusiastic cast. You know, uh, Henry was young. Carrie was young. Catherine was young. They were all just young and really happy to be there and thrilled. Uh, The Romanians hadn't got a clue what they were doing. Uh, I don't mean hadn't got a clue what they were doing making a film. They hadn't got a clue what Hellraiser was. They hadn't got a clue. Uh, Unlike any other film set in the world where, like, I had to take Hellraiser boxes and lock them up in between scenes, I could leave Hellraiser boxes lying around and – (laughs) <laughs> you know, Romanians didn't give a shit. If I left a yeah. cheap sandwich around, they would have eaten that in a it and stolen it. But uh, Hellraiser box, pff, they didn't care. They were like, what yeah. Hellraiser thing. And they thought Pinhead was kind of weird looking. Um, no, there was no sense of like, oh, what are we doing here? I mean, I did because I'd read the script and I was like, this is not very good. You know what I mean? And just kind of like a bit. Bleh. Um, but I mean, everybody went into it with full gusto. Um but i mean, I think there was more it felt like it felt like if you were if you a if you were a chef making a three course meal uh, and Rick was making a three course meal and the starter and the main course were deader. He kind of forgotten about dessert a little bit. Right. So then all of his, he blew his wad on the main, on the appetizer in the main course. And then by the time we got to the dessert, it was a bit like, uh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What is this got nuts in it? Oh yeah, and and cherries. Oh and cream. Like why why are we, why why are we putting that in there? You know, it was all just a bit like you got the feeling that certain people in the crew are like I just want to go home now. Um, uh, you know, not Doug, not the cast. They were all kind of like very enthusiastic. We were enthusiastic. I mean, again, you know, I had a great time on it. I mean, um, yeah, like I say, the cast were amazing. Really energetic young cast who, you got the feeling they were just having a a blast. You know what I mean? In a, in a, in a new city, in a nice hotel, working on this movie and uh, and doing the, doing the very best they could. You know, doing the very best they could. So it was. Um, yeah, I mean, there was no sense of like, what, this is garbage, right? Um, I just felt that when we left, that I was like, that wasn't. It was really after that end scene and with Doug's final words that I was like, yeah. I don't know about that, guys. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if that's the film because we we genuinely thought it might be the last Hellraiser film ever. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a bit like, really, that's that's how we're that's how we're going out.
0: Who knew that revelations was to come? We'll be up to revelations and judgment in just a wee bit, but I was wondering, we've talked about budgets quite a bit, right? And when it comes to uh, Bloodline, I know that Bloodline had its budget cut astronomically, well, pun partially intended, while you guys were making it. And like, was there many big bits of Bloodline that you had kind of worked on that they they said, right, we've got to chop this? What did you hear and who's told you that? Well, I, I, I was reading the original script for it, uh-huh. and uh, they mentioned, and I know that the film became an Alan Smithy film. Where yeah. the uh, so I think it might have been just, maybe it was just a Wikipedia page, but the director was talking about how, um, or at least it was being suggested that he talked about how he was he was having the purse strings tightened as we were as
1: they were making it. No. Uh, no, you don't start a movie with that. You, you, your budget doesn't get cut while you're doing making a movie. There was a, an amount of movie. Uh, the script was signed off. One, the budget was done, and we started making the film. And and that was simple. There was nothing. There was nothing in the original script that was uh, that was cut out. The shooting script. I mean, obviously, I think Peter's original draft. Yeah, was very uh, was much more grandiose. But um, but no. Um, what happened uh, on Hellraiser Bloodline was. We started shooting. Kevin Yeager was the director. Kevin Yeager, who's a very, very, you know, very well known effects artist um, and who directed like um, some Taz from the Crypt episodes, etc. So we started shooting, and Kevin had hired Francis Kenny to be the DP. And Francis Kenny's kind of a, I think Francis Kenny was the guy who like, got the DP of like Clueless and things like that, you know what I mean? So the film didn't look like a Hellraiser film, it looked very kind of bright and overlit. And also, I think like Kevin had fought some, for some casting choices which weren't really working out. So I think Dimension were getting dailies and they didn't like it, which is not unusual because Bob doesn't tend to like anything he sees early on. What basically happened was we shot the movie. It was uh, it was one of the the most frustrating sets I've been on in that we would sit around for hours and hours and hours doing nothing. Um, and I just think they took a long time. I don't think. Kevin was making his days. Um, Basically, Kevin was having problems directing the film. His producer would come on set late at night and be like, where are we at? Why are you behind? What's going on? Um, They fired the DP and brought in Jerry Lively, who'd been the DP on Hellraiser, Hell on Earth. And to cut a long story short, after the six-week shoot, which probably wasn't enough, it's never enough, but I don't think Kevin had got his ducks in a row and was behind. They finished the film, and I think... There were concerns at Dimension uh, about the project, so they asked Kevin to see the movie as quickly as possible. They said, can we see a rough cut? And Kevin is a DGA director, and DGA rules are that you get, uh, I think it's 10 or 12 weeks before you have to show anything. And Kevin went toe-to-toe with Bob Weinstein and said, no, I'm not showing you anything. And uh, Bob Weinstein said, no, I want to see some stuff. And he went, no, I'm not, I'm not showing you anything. And I think they basically had a, a face-to-face screaming match. Um, and Bob knew he couldn't, you know, he wasn't going to get to see anything. Um, but you don't go to war with Bob Weinstein under something like that because you're not going to win that fight. <laughs> you know, basically, he's going to see it eventually. You would be much better off saying, you know what? Give me a couple of weeks and I'll cut together some scenes for you and I'll show you. Get Bob on, his, on your side. He made a real enemy of Bob at that situation. As soon as Bob, they, they, the twelve, the 10 or 12 weeks elapsed and Kevin showed his cut, Bob went, no, I hate it. And basically they got rid of him you know, and said, we're bringing in somebody else. Um, and then Kevin went away and cried and moaned and, uh, and said that you know the world was against him and everybody hates him. But he hadn't done a very good job. So they brought in Joe Chappelle. Who did uh, the curse of michael myers um and over the next year we did three blocks of two weeks of reshoots. basically the entire film was almost reshot. The only stuff that's really existing from what Kevin shot is the modern day l a stuff uh where the architect where the architect character of the entire opening sequence all of that was all reshot and was redone. the birth of uh the angelique character that was all the demon. Possessing the girl. That was all shot by Joe Chappelle. And then most of the stuff um on the space station was reshot and everything else. So really the only stuff that's existing is um is the kind of middle section, which it honestly it just it felt very TV episodic. It, it felt like um like someone who directed Tales from the Crypt. did look like that. But Kevin had brought in a lot of his friends from uh, Tales from the Crypt, and they weren't used to working nights on a horror film and they got very pissed off and people started leaving and complaining about the hours. And I was like, Hey man, it's cool. I'm having fun. Right. And Kevin, bless his heart, kept coming to me and saying, you get this, like, you know, you understand it. Like there was, there was parts of the set designed where they'd like made little lamps with barbed wire on them. And Kevin was like, explain to them what Hellraiser looks like. And I'd gone up to people and said, you know, it should look like this. And they go, Oh, we haven't watched any of those films. We don't watch Hellraiser movies. You know, we're not interested in that kind of stuff. So, um, so, yeah, so when it came out, Kevin took his name off the film and went with the uh, DGA assigned credit of Alan Smiley. And has since, because I've worked with Kevin since, uh, has since manifested what happened, the events of what happened he's molded it into his poor me scenario where everyone was against him. He was a genius and was making this incredible work of art. And, and I was there at the time and it's like, yeah, actually, no, mate, you really weren't doing that great job actually, you know, so I'm sorry, but, uh, working on a huge film, like, you did Mission Impossible 2, I believe. And, uh, well, you know, Bloodline isn't a huge, huge film. I think the, the budget on Bloodline, I think, was six million dollars or five point eight million dollars, I believe. No, I wasn't meaning Bloodline. for I was actually
0: about to contrast them. I was going to say, when you're working on a big budget movie like Mission Impossible Two or or uh, like X Men Wolverine, do, do you, do you kind of are you a bit more restricted when you've got a much bigger budget to work with? Like, are they a bit of a bit more of a bit more are, like of a studio generally saying this is exactly what we want, or do you have a bit more independence?
1: Uh, The big difference on big budget films is first of all, you get paid a lot more money (laughs) and the crew jacket's really nice and the food's way better. Um, But there's a lot of, uh, you have to stay in your lane. You really have to stay in your lane. And if you don't, you have to kind of fax and send several emails and request that you can have a chat with somebody about something. And it has to go through a process. You know, everything has to be done by a process. One of the most frustrating things about Sleepy Hollow was that you couldn't you weren't things weren't open to interpretation you know it had to be ran by tim and then approved by a studio and blah 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 whereas when you're doing a two million three million dollar horror film you know if a director trusts you they're kind of like hey man just make it cool you know i mean i kind of i'm semi-retired now i don't really even do this stuff anymore but the director that i still will work with every time is patrick Lussier, who did like i say dracula 2000 and the two dracula sequels and uh Drive Angry and, uh, you know, and Patrick, the, the reason I love working with Patrick is because he just like goes, dude, make it cool, you know, and if it's a death scene, like, come up with something, right? Tell me, you know, or he'll have an idea and then he'll say, what do you think? And I'll say, well, we're at this and he will say, yeah, we're at this. And it's a, it's a, it's a real collaborative effort. And and sometimes, you know, when you work on high budget films, you do get that, but there tends to be such a lot of people and uh, so many cooks in the kitchen that it's sometimes it's just, it, it just takes the enthusiasm out of you sometimes you're just kind of like told to just look here's a picture of what we want it's been approved by a studio that's what it needs to look like don't change it you know and just do your job and yeah you'll get more money but i find it a bit more uh, creatively restricted.
0: now before, do, before we get on to revelations i understand that you had some form of a an idea for another Hellraiser that involved a priest I was reading yeah. about. Was this, about yeah. the time that Inferno was coming out.
1: Is that, is no, that the right sort of right after Bloodline. Right ah. after Bloodline. So uh, I had this idea from, for a film called Hellraiser Holy War. I'd become very friendly with one of the producers on Bloodline and he basically, uh, while the, the Kevin Yeager tobacco was going down, um, we started confiding and talking and, uh, and I pitched him an idea for this thing called Hellraiser the Holy War. And um, he said, that's a kind of a cool idea, you know, and I pitched him his whole opening sequence uh, with his priest. And he, he liked it. And uh, he said, you should have a meeting with Bob and pitched it to Bob. So they organized a, uh, a meeting with Bob Weinstein. And that weekend, um, I had a meeting on the Monday and on the Friday before Screen came out. So I went into Bob's office on the Monday and they said, oh, Bob's not here. He's actually in New York. He had to go back to New York. And uh, I met with another exec and they went, they don't care about Hellraiser anymore. They're more interested in screen movies right now. So, uh, you know, that, that Hellraiser idea that you have, I'm going to shit on a shelf. Right now, Hellraiser is the last thing that Bob, Bob Weinstein's interested in. He has such a bad taste in his mouth from the last experience that, uh, yeah, sorry about that, mate. And it was like, oh, you know, so... My my I, my my hopes of a Hellraiser movie were dashed by Scream. i must and it, suck. A, and it wasn't the first time my Hellraiser... It wouldn't be the only time that my Hellraiser hopes were dashed by Scream, as it would. Really? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but believe it was Scream Four, stopped you from directing Revelations? Exactly. Well, so I'm on Scream Four, working with the amazing Wiz Craven. You know, after you know, I finally get you know. Uh, the producer involved had worked with me on various movies and said i really want you to meet wes and wesley's editor patrick had said you know i really want you to meet wes and where should you use you and wes had used can be for a long time but he wanted to mix it up so I, I met with wes and we had this amazing amazing day together talking about movies and uh and food and all sorts of stuff and he was he was a real great person and uh and he asked me to do the effects on screen Four. So I we prep the movie and we go up to Michigan. I'm in Michigan and I get a phone call from Joss Swasson, the producer. He says, "Gary, are you still interested in still interested in directing a Hellraiser movie?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah, absolutely!" He's like, "We have to do a Hellraiser movie and we have to do a Children of the Corn movie to retain the rights." And I was like, "Brilliant, I'm in, mate." You know? And he's like, "Okay, um, we can only pay you this, and the budget's like two hundred thousand so dollars." I was like, "I don't care. You know, it's a Hellraiser movie. I'll, I'll." I'll direct it if you've got $10 and a beta cam, you know what I mean? So uh, he's like, do you have an idea for a script? And I was like, I think I do. It's got to be super cheap, right? And he's like, yeah. So I was like, yeah, how about this? And he's like, that sounds cool. Start writing. So uh, he's like, yeah, you're going to write and direct it. We start shooting. You know, We'll start shooting like two weeks after you get back from Scream. And I was like, yay. And then he called back and he's like, "Uh, we have to shoot like in three weeks' time. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, we have to shoot in three weeks' time. And I was like, can't you shoot Children of the Corn first and then do Hellraiser and like back to back? And he's like, no, they both have to shoot at the same time. He said, it's a rights issue thing. They have to, it's kind of been an an overlooked situation, a dimension they haven't caught on to the fact that they're about to lose the rights. So this is what it is. And I was like, oh, no. And he's like, yeah. I said, well, can you ask, you know, can we ask Bob if I can leave Scream? I'll send someone up here and I'll go and do Hellraiser. And they said, Bob's attitude is all, I think Andrew, whoever the exec was at the time, they said, we care about Scream. This is our $40 million, you know, showbiz mm-hmm. movie. We couldn't give a shit about Hellraiser <laughs> Revelations, this $200,000 rights retainer. Yeah, it's, you're, you're more important to us doing Scream. So I was like, fuck, Scream kills me again. It's,
2: like, uh, it's adding new meaning to when Lance Henriksen says in Hell World, "If you need anything, yeah, just scream." Just scream,
0: yeah, yeah. With the Children of the Corn that came out at that point, I saw they used footage
1: from <laughs> Bad Boys Two at one bit. Oh, that's the the road thing. That's right. Yeah, was, I imagine it's the same kind of attitude there of let's <laughs> rush this thing through. So, so I mean, I I said you said you still want to write it. And I said yeah, and I I basically held up in a hotel room for like a, I, had a, I, had a, I had a I had a concept for the script. I knew what I wanted to do and uh and i felt like i could write a kind of a really uh a, i felt i could write a really tight little hellraiser movie that was a real hellraiser movie the thing about the the first hellraiser that i've always loved is that is the purity and simplicity of that script mm-hmm. you know it's a very simple story it's, it, to me it's, it's actually a gangster story i've always said it's a it's a gangster story and people go what, what do you mean it's a gangster story and i say if you imagine frank's Frank's a, 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 a guy who works for the mob and the Cenobites are the mob and he's basically worked for them doing this, some kind of deal with money and then he steals the money and goes on the lam and then he meets up with his old floozy and says hey hey take care of me and then me and you will run away together we just need to escape the mob you know you've got get me help me get healthy and then we'll run away together I promise you even though he's lying to her and he's gonna sell her out to the mob as well you know what I mean and then it all gets kind of convoluted but Basically, the Cenobites, I always saw them as the vig collectors, you know what I mean? They're the, uh, they're the evil, the, the, the henchmen of the mafia kind of thing coming to get Frank. Very simple story. Very simple love triangle takes place in one house. So my idea was if I did a di- if we have had these two teenagers who've gone missing and it's a dinner party kind of like between the two families. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, they, they kind of get together every year. Because they're still talking but there's a lot of tension between them and kind of a lot of you know blaming each other but they're kind of like trying to get along and then one of the kids mm-hmm. turns up he just turns up kind of in a daze or clearly he's escaped his abductors you know what i mean he's bruised and battered and bleeding and he's not making any sense he's kind of like you got to help me protect me from them protect them and kind of parents are like well, where's the other kid what's gone on uh, and then as events unfold, you realize he's not the one kid. He's the other kid in the skin of the other one. And he's willing to do whatever he can to get away. And then you find out that the parents were fucking each other. And it's all this twisted stuff. And, you know, basically, uh, you know, there's the underbelly. So I thought that can all be done as a, um, as kind of like an ibsen kind of thing. Like you keep it all in one, in, in, in a house. Um, I'd never written any of that fucking, uh, you know, um, found footage camera, two teens going to fucking Mexico shit that's in it. I'd done it all as like it's just a dinner party, you know, at a house oh, and then okay. it, events unfold, you know. That Found footage a bit really irritated me because they're running it throughout, throughout the film kind of uh, in
0: parallel. And the thing is, the audience know basically what's happened because they've seen a Hellraiser film before. And it's mm. like two-thirds of the way through the movie, we're still getting like, ooh, plot twist, this box, and
1: so on. Yeah, and well, it yeah, all it was totally so, needless. It was all, yeah, it was all. It was written kind of like, you know, as a Hellraiser movie for Hellraiser fans. So you didn't need to have it explained to you. It's kind of like, why with this dinner party and what's going on? And then, that, you know, the only thing they've got to go on is this video footage. that's kind of grainy you can hear voices on it and we don't know what's going on um and then kind of like his kid turns up and it's like it it it, it 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 peels back like an onion kind of thing after that you know what i mean mm-hmm. and ends up with this big showdown where he's gonna basically kill the what he's killed the parent it was the guy who was fucking his mom you know and all that and then basically sell them all out uh you know uh, to 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 escape it was really a, a riff on the first film
2: I was going to just say, uh, Tom, I thought it sounds like the premise of the film Carnage uh, with starring Jodie Foster. And it it just seemed like an interesting setup. Right. If it had gone the way uh, maybe that's a more envisioned.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, you know, I wrote it over three days. I gave it to the producers. They said, this is really, really good. You know, uh, we're actually pretty happy with this. Uh, we want to do a little polish on it. And I was like, like, do you want to do it? And I was like, no, you know, I'm I'm kind of working on Scream. I'm exhausted anyway. Uh, I'm not going to be directing yet. So and they said, we've got this director, you know, and uh, he called me and said, I love the script. And I'm really excited. And he was a big fan of the Hellraiser franchise. And then my guys did the effects. Um, and the, the first hint of worry I really had was that Mike, got, <laughs> Mike Regan called me and said dude I've just seen the guy that casts his Penhead. he's got a really strange shaped head you know he's like he's got like a very bulbous forehead it's gonna look weird in the makeup and I was like
2: hey no, you know
1: I'm not directing what, what can I do you know what I mean and I you know it's like that was it and then
2: recasting Doug must have always been a tough call to make
1: well no nah, well I got the call for, they called me and said hey will you call Doug Bradley and talk to Doug Bradley mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, and I'd actually on Hellworld and Deader, they'd asked ask me to talk to Doug because they said, we've got this much money. And, and basically they said, this is how much money we have to pay Doug Bradley for, for Pinhead. Um, if he doesn't, we're telling you right now, we, we've been told if he just turns it down, they'll recast. So I had to negotiate with Doug and say, you know, this is how much it is, you know, Doug. And he was like, really? And I was like, it wasn't a bad amount of money uh, for the amount of time he did on set. Um, not what he deserves because I mean he's penned, you know. But um, but they'd said to Bear, I'd said, look, I'm I'm talking. He's like, well, why are you talking to me about it? And not the producers, I said, because they're very kind of like, here's how much we're going to offer you. There's no discussion if you don't want to do it, we'll recast. And I was just like, look, they're going to recast. It. And he's like, they're, they're they're joking. I was like, no, they're not joking. They are deadly serious. So when we got to Revelations, they said, well, you call Doug Bradley and ask him if he wants to do it. And I said, well, how much have you got to pay him? And they said $6,000. And I went, you're fucking kidding me. $6,000. So that's 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 ridiculous. And they said, well, we have 200,000 for the movie. That's kind of what we have for, for for Bennett. We don't have any money. It just isn't there. We can't give him $100,000 or $50,000 because then we won't be able to make a film so we're already you know strung up so will you make the call so i called doug and i he was horrible really because i mean it's like you know like you're having to call somebody who's a friend and and say hey you know so here's the here's the deal uh you know and um i told him what the script was like and uh you know what the script was about and he was like it doesn't sound great and i was like you know well you know i said honestly i said it's kind of this is what he said, but this is how much they're willing to pay you and he was like what he said that's that's fucking ridiculous and i said no it is he said I, i'm not doing it for that much money he said i'm not doing it for that much money he said that's mm. that's an insult and i said no i don't blame you and i and when i called him back and i said he won't do it i said i said he's insulted he's he's genuinely insulted as he should be i said i'm sure he makes more than that in a weekend selling out boy tens so why is he going to mm. come and do it all right. i think the only, all i said to him was like hey It'll give you something new to talk out at conventions, you know, and it'll it'll have you know something, you know something new to talk about because it's been a while since you did the Hellraiser movie. I said so, you know, and it'll be great to have you in it, you know. I said I can't imagine anyone else doing it, and I think the only reason he pondered it for maybe the split second that he did was that he genuinely thought, "Do I really want somebody else playing this role?" And I'm sure that there's part of that is, "Do I want somebody else playing this role?" and there's a little bit of his, you know, 5% of that is is somebody going to do a better job than me. And, uh, you know, which would be impossible to do because he's great in the character. But obviously, I think Stephen Smith Collins was a very, very poor choice. I think he was directed badly in the role. And then the mm-hmm. idea to dub him was even worse. So I mean, uh, all around, I mean, it was a chewing the scenery kind of performance. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly not what I would have done with it. The film isn't what I would have, the way I would have directed it. Um, like I say, I mean, Carlos, bless his heart, big Hellraiser fan, Uh, you know, was really excited to be doing it, knew he was compromised by the time, but gave it his best shot. But it certainly isn't the film I would have made. I think I could have made a better film or a more grittier film, that's for sure. Um, I think he made some bad casting choices by casting his, um, his wife or his girlfriend as one of the female roles. If you want to know who his wife is and if you think of the actors in the film, the one that seems to be hysterically crying all the time, that's his wife um hmm. and i think it suffers from the film suffers from not being reined in i think the performances are all over the place and the casting's hmm. a bit poor so you know my guys did the effects on it and i mean and apart from pinhead which is nothing to do with the technical aspects of the makeup it was just the the face that it's gone on to unfortunately it was a difficult face to work with to make him look, you need somebody with kind of a square jaw and a, you know or a face that you can enhance and Stephen didn't have that kind of a face, um, but I think all of you. The other makeup effects, considering the makeup effects budget was seven thousand dollars, I think actually it was pretty damn good. Wow, there's a few centabytes in there, and again, that's purely because my guys did it as a labour of love. And you know, I think the boxes look nice, and uh, you know, uh, you know, the costumes, apart from Pennant's costume, which again they were they were scrambling to make it fit him. You know what I mean? The whole
0: turnaround time—it was about six weeks or so that it took for the script after the script
1: to get the film oh yeah I think I wrote it then two weeks later they shot it and uh, I mean here's the deal I went away I went away to do Scream 4 two weeks after I was there I got the call when I came back I was given a copy of the movie to watch that's
0: quick that's did, quick did, did they keep you updated on like the story yeah. changes
1: or anything <laughs> all I know is I got back they said here's a copy to look I went into the, I went into the to the studio to, to meet the guys and was like hey and they are like hey and Carson like, hey, was like so mm. nice to meet you and I was like hey and they are all happy and said, we were really happy with it and then I took it home and watched it and first thing I did was call my buddy Mike and say what the fuck why didn't you stop the director with Stephen doing all of this pain for suffering, I was like, "What?" He's like, "I know, man." He said, "I couldn't say anything." I was like, "What on earth?" And he said, "Well, I didn't have the heart to tell you when you were up in Michigan." He said, "You you would have had a meltdown." I was like, "Oh my god, we're going to get raped over this." You know what I mean? And then they kept doing all these weird inserts of like, in, it was like cutting back to Pinhead and stuff during the movie. It's like what is Pinhead yeah. in the box or something. Like, what's going on here? Like, it makes no sense. So. Um yeah, it was it was awful. And then of course it came out and I got the feeling that Doug was like, ha 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 ha, ha, ha. now I can just go to town on what a bag of shit this was. And uh, and then Clive weighed in saying, you know, this is uh, you know, not he says something like it's not from my asshole or something like this, you know. Which I always think is kind of funny because um history forgets things so easily and lest we forget that Clive happened to write you know, rawhead Rex and transmutations, or you know, underworld. Before he managed to make Hellraiser, uh, you know, so there were two movies out there directed by George Pavlo, which are no great movies of their own, uh, bastardised versions of his scripts. You know, so I mean, uh, uh, what happened to him? I had happened to me on Revelations, but what I what I will say is, I'm actually surprised how, and this is shocking to me when I watch these kind of um, uh, people do their countdown of favorite Hellraiser movies, you know, or worst, you know, least of favorite or, you know, what rating Hellraiser movies, the revelations is quite often some people's, you know, not it's not the bottom of the list. I'm always really surprised. I'm like, some people are like, I actually kind of like it. I actually don't mind that film. I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, you know. And it's, they're not telling me this. They're not saying it to me. So they're not kind of like, you know, suckling at the teat. This is people leaving their unbiased kind of like ratings videos on YouTube. So I've actually seen videos where I'm like, obviously number 10 is going to be at Revelations, and it's not. And I'm always really shocked. And people go, well, I do feel like it's it's actually a genuine Hellraiser movie. And had they had some more time and some money and maybe a little bit of effort gone into it, it could have actually been okay. So, um Yeah. Weird. Yeah, on my list it wasn't number ten. So I did an article about article
0: We Welcome. It was number it was uh, number nine. I think for main reason that like for main thing for me it has over Hellworld is as you say it feels Hellraiser. You've got your you've got the skin suits again. You know you've got, uh, yeah, you've got that's a small what wrote, Family
1: the dynamic. Plan. Yeah, I see. See, and this is what I would I, I will say. I forgot it, but I I truly believe, and I will go to uh, you know I will I will die on the hill on this. I think that that moment when he says, you know, I would have given you the shirt off my back, and he knocks him out and goes flick with the knife and goes, it's not the shirt off your back I want. I think that's bit as hell-raised as you can possibly get. Yeah, you know, I, can you imagine frank. I can imagine that as a Frank sort of thing. Totally right. Well, I wrote it as being a Frank line. It's like, you know, it's not just not not shirt off your back I want, flick, you know, and then you see him in the mirror doing the thing with the skin, you know. It's like, yeah, to me that was a very hell esque thing. So I think, um, I think People who could see through the veil could say, oh, you know, I can see the, the love in there. You know, it's it's look, it's easy to just kind of like pan things. Um, that's why I've really I've rarely got time for people to kind of just like leave one word critiques for the movie. You know, um, the the weird thing is that a few years after the movie had come out, somebody um fairly, you know, known to Doug came to me and actually said, you know, I can't say this around Doug, but I actually kind of like Revelations, you know, and they're like, you know, had Doug been in it, you know, it probably would have actually not been a bad film, you know, and uh, if a a different director had taken a hand it, so, you know, should have, could have, would have, maybe it would have been, but, uh, but I certainly thought, well, that's it. That was definitely my last chance of doing a Horizon movie. That, that ship has sailed. Never again will, uh, they they asked me to do anything so i was very shocked when uh, things changed again
2: before we move on i just got an interesting question about um like like the mythos of hellraiser and we've always had this sort of i think in the first film he was a cricket eating hobo guy who sort of transforms into this big skeleton at the very end of the film
1: yeah it's always amazing to me that talking about that that People always, you know, regard Hellraiser as this imper this perfect perfect movie that's absolutely perfect in every way. Yet they always forget kind of rickety dragony crappy yeah. puppet flying off at the end of the box. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. There was that beat, you always go, oh yeah, I forgot about this shit at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: guess you're kind of answering my question there, so is because it's always the most unexplained aspect of uh, the mythos of Hellraiser, and if there had been the budget, because there was a lot of the the homeless man, sort of the guardian of the box, if you will, appearing in Revelations. Was there anything you're wanting to do with that character?
1: The derelict. Well, I mean, I wrote him into Revelations. Uh, You know, I mean, the the derelict was, you know, that character, the derelict, who's in, you know, he's in the first film. He's in part three, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and I said, yeah, let's bring him back. So, I mean, the character that uh, they meet in the bar who kind of sells them the box, he's totally supposed to be that character. You know, even the way he's looked, the long hair and the straggly beard. So in Revelations, that character was is, is, was totally meant to be that same guy.
2: Was there any point when he gets hit with a, a shotgun blast? Was there any considerations of any, if there was the budget and had you maybe directed it yourself of doing a, a superior version of the uh, dragon skeleton monster?
1: No, I would never have done that. Again, it's okay. one of those things that I was – it's like there, there are several movies in my in my, uh, in my my life that that I edit in my brain. So if you asked me to tell you uh, the story of Hellraiser, the first movie, I would never involve that scene. It's always like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. To me, it's like the movie – I know this is going to sound like a complete shift of gears, but the movie Heat – like, I never, mm-hmm. I always imagine the movie, I will turn it off when I watch it. I will turn off heat when Robert De Niro and, and the girl drive into the tunnel away from it. I'll turn it off because it makes no sense for him to go back and, and go and fight with Ali Pacino. It's like, why would he go back for Wayne Grove? Wayne, he'd just have someone kill Wayne Grove years later on. Like, he's, mm. he's got away with it. You've won. You've got the girl. You've got the money. You're going to go off and live the life. But now you have got to compromise it which is everything that you said you wouldn't do for the last two hours. And now you're going to go what on a, on a, a, a vengeance thing. This is exactly what your character's not about. So it's like, I edit it out in my brain. Um, same as Casino Royale. I never remember the Vesper Lynn drowning sequence. I always think the movie ends when he's, you know, he's a, the guy, he's escaped the torture sequence with the guy mm-hmm. in his balls. It's kind of, to me, the film finishes there. So,
2: it's got multiple Hellwright, endings, uh, that yeah, film, yeah.
1: First is, uh, I always uh, strategically edit that perfect movie with not having the, uh, you know, especially with that horrible claw insert of it grabbing the box, you know, <laughs> flying off, you know, when the point of view of Oh, I never, yeah, I never have the... Uh,
2: yeah, I, I always sort of viewed the because there's a lot of the sound effect of flapping wings in the first film. I always like assumed that that was like a setup for the unveiling of the skeleton creature. I could see maybe Clive Barker had something better in his mind for I'm what sure was he then uh, put in the end of the film.
1: You'd have to ask the great man himself for that one. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, again, don't don't get me wrong. I I, I adore Hellraiser and was a fan. Still am the fan. Will always be a fan of the first mm. film. I think uh, you know it. Uh, uh, amongst the um the, the the ton of dross that was kind of being produced in that age in the video time of, of yeah. films, uh hellraiser stood out it, it was completely unique at the time it was a and it's very british although they tried to make it come off as this american mm-hmm. I mean, it felt mm-hmm. essentially very english um and we had this great kind of romantic lead character akin to dracula um mm-hmm. and the one thing i would say as well is that i'm always stunned the fact that uh Hellraiser 1 and Hellraiser 2 look and feel so incredibly similar, similar, even though they were shot several years later. Um, Mm -hmm. And Hellraiser 2 definitely suffered from budget cuts. They literally had their budget cut, um, you know, like weeks before they shot. I think Mm -hmm. that was due to the financial collapse of the time. There was a, 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 you know, there was a, big finance, 87, you know what I mean? I think when finances hit the shitter, it kind of really affected. So their, their budget got halved overnight. But I still think it's amazing what um, Tony Randall achieved in that film because it looks and feels like they were shot back, yeah. back. to really Yeah, it real does. Cool. Yeah. And that's why I'm not a huge fan of Hellraiser Hell on Earth because I always think that Hellraiser Hell on Earth takes a complete left turn. You've got these two films that look and feel very kind of like a certain way and have their own very mm-hmm. visual Style that you can really lock into, and then you've got this MTV Hellraiser three movie, you know, um, which wasn't supposed to be directed by Tony Hickox. I mean, Tony had literally just done Waxworks two, uh, and the producers had a falling out with Tony Randall, and uh, and Bob Keen I think said, uh, you know, I've just done Waxworks two with Tony Hickox, so I can recommend him heartily, hmm. and uh, so Tony came in at the last minute and took over. We move on now from Revelations to Judgment. Uh, so Revelations, I mentioned, was
0: number nine on my ranking list. Judgment is number four in my ranking list. I really liked this. I really like this Ooh. film. It's uh, for me, aside from the original trilogy, this is absolutely the best uh, Hellraiser film. Well, and I guess, yeah. guess, what I'm wondering is what went right because uh, because th- with this one here, you, I know it was also done to keep for rights, but there, it looks like there's a much longer
1: pre-production period that you had to work with. Um. I think we had, I think I got the call in November, and we were shooting in February. Hmm. So, um, again, same producer as Revelations. He literally called and said, hey, look, I'm really sorry. It's not the film you should be directing. It's not the budget you should have, but they've got a little bit more money. Are you still interested in doing the Hellraiser thing? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. literally, I am. In fact, I have a script. I've written a script before, which i would taken all of the Hellraiser stuff out of. Cause I didn't think I could get it made and he was like great you know uh well then you know uh let's pitch it to Dimension so I pitched it to them and they said absolutely not that sounds dreadful we hate the sound of this script you know and uh I was like really and I wrote another pitch I did a you know like a, a three page four page synopsis with the judgment you know the whole the audit and everything else and they were like no sounds terrible we hate this what's all this vomit and skinning people and this guy with the typewriter and he's not a cinnabite. just give us a you know just give us a horror film and i was like look guys i did a hellraiser film with revelations i wrote what i thought was a traditional hellraiser film i give up the fans slaughtered me for that i may as well i've decided rather than owning a restaurant where i try and figure out what everyone's to eat And go, maybe they want more pepper on that. Maybe they need more ketchup. Maybe they want the bun like this. You know what? I'm going to make a hamburger for me. You know, I'm going to make it the way I want to eat it. And if somebody else gets a slice of it and they say, this is pretty tasty, then fantastic. But I'm going to make it for me. Uh, And I think I'm going to do something different and have a different mythology and bring some different characters into it. And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. But no, you're not going to do it. And I was like, oh, fantastic. So I think I wrote another synopsis. And while I was at it, I wrote a a really kind of Hellraiser synopsis called Hellraiser uh, Enter Darkness, um, which was kind of like, uh, you know, four young psych students working for this kind of like doctor exploring the avenues of the mind, kind of like Channard kind of stuff. And they they read that and were like, that's fantastic. Let's make Enter Darkness. That's the movie for us. And I said, guys, you're wrong. I said, I really believe judgment is the one to do. And the studio said, OK, well, here's the deal. If you believe that the, to be the case, then you write Hellraiser Judgment. But if we don't like it, then you will write Enter Darkness for free. And and I went, OK, because I'm a mug. So I, I went away and wrote it. I think I took about three weeks and wrote the script. And then I sent it to them and kind of sat there and had to go into a you know boardroom Zoom call. And they all filed in and. Luckily, one of the execs said, so we read this judgment script. We kind of get it now. This is OK. Obviously, it needs some work. And obviously, we have notes. But we see where you're going with this now. So they they went on board. But they still took a lot of stuff out of it, even up till the very end. I mean, we'd, we'd finished shooting the film. And they were like, you know, we've been thinking about it. This whole audit thing, we should maybe just lose all of that stuff, lose the whole audit thing. And I was like, are you guys mental? Are you mental? <laughs> are you mad? And they were like, yeah, it's just a bit weird, this thing, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, please, guys, I'm telling you, the audit stuff is the best stuff in it. And they were like, Yeah, no, we kind of like the detective story. And I'm like, oh, God almighty. So um, it was a fight. I don't understand why they they kept wanting cutting down, cutting it down. My early original cut was like 120 minutes. It was like, you know, but yeah, we did have a little bit more time, you know, and and the script was batted around, kept going back and forth. I was having to jump through hoops all the time. And what was really frustrating is that Dimension were going through all kinds of financial problems at the time. So they were changing executives on me literally every three weeks. So like I'd I'd get into a meeting with like, two guys and they go like, you need to do this and this and this and we don't like this and we don't like that and then three weeks later i meet some new guys who were in charge and they're like we don't like this we don't like that and i go well that isn't the way it was it was like this before oh well that sounds better you know say, yeah that's what i i yeah i wrote that three weeks ago yeah well, we're going to change it back to that and then they get fired and three weeks later someone like i don't like this thing here and they'd be like oh for the love of god so It was all very frustrating. The only thing that was decent about it was that uh, I knew what the effects were so I could prep the effects. And even though I had a very limited budget, I knew I could shoot the effects how I wanted them and I I could build the things so that – like, you know, if you're shooting at building an effect, sometimes you have to build the front and the back and the sides because the director might want to shoot it from behind. I knew how I was going to shoot it, so I knew what I could get away with and what elements I could lose and what I could get away with just, uh, you know, throwing a catsuit on a girl and uh, putting a gas mask on it, you know what I mean, and stuff like that, and where I could get away with those things and um, what things I could buy. Uh, and I was very conscious about, um, because the budget was so low, trying to up the ante by making sure that um, props were decent, so often when you're on a low budget film, you know, a poor prop person will get hired and it's like, OK, I need some spit vials and I need this and I need a knife. And they just go down to Target or to Walmart and they go and buy some pieces and it looks like shit. Because I had the time and I was writing the script, I could go on eBay and search out antique pieces. And I tried to make sure that everything had a, a, a nice look to it, you know, and, and I art department a lot of things and built a lot of things for the film. So like the typewriter and, uh, and the, you know, all the details to try and just... Try and up the quality of it a little bit, you know what I mean?
0: I know it's a low-budget film, but it doesn't look like one. I think the whole first half hour or so where you've got, as you said, the audit sequence, you've got a lot going on in the house. It looks amazing.
1: $400,000 was... $400, until two weeks before the movie. <laughs> and <then> they said, <laughs> oh, because uh, I was like, what's my budget? And they said, $400,000. That's how much you've got. I said, $400,000, right? I don't have to pay anybody anything. They're like, no, no, no. You have $400,000 to make the movie and it was like okay and i had a brilliant producer mike leahy and uh you know he was getting deals from everywhere he possibly could and then literally two or three weeks before he said our budget just got cut by fifty thousand dollars and i was like why he said they turned out they hadn't paid clive barker his rights so that we have to give right a check for fifty thousand dollars to clive barker and it was like yay fifty thousand dollars which when you're making a film for four hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money so um it's a miracle i mean i really have to give huge kudos to uh, mike Leahy, who uh, stood behind the project um which was hard for him because he's a very actually a very religious guy and he had a real problem with some of the religious religious aspects of the film but he went to bat and got great deals on things and got hotels for super prices and the the car at the opening he got for free and uh yeah made sure we were all fed really well and um it, it, having a great producer like that really really helps. But uh, yeah, it was super low budget, three hundred and fifty thousand dollars.
0: Mm. Because you've got the a lot of the sort of tortury bits of the beginning, like it sounds like some of the problems, the, the most of the problems that they had with you doing this were based upon this section, the uh, the audit part. Like was that? But there's so many striking images within that. Like was that like,
1: for yourself as a as a director? What was what kind of influences did you have there? I mean, i tried to infuse the film. This is going to sound very pompous now, I guess. But, I mean, I was definitely trying to... I would look at uh, pictures by um, Francis Bacon and also by Hieronymus Bosch. I was trying to kind of give that kind of weird uh, imagery to it. Um, definitely Cronenberg. Definitely Fincher. Um... um I just wanted – I mean, I wanted it to be kind of bizarre. I mean, originally the film doesn't start with the audit. It doesn't start with the audit. The film actually starts with uh, <clears throat> the, girl, the girl coming home into her apartment, um, you know. Um, the audit's not until, like, originally about 25 minutes later on. And, they, and I, saying that, I'd originally written it with the audit at the beginning, originally. I just thought we'll have 12 minutes or 15 minutes of just complete weirdness and then do titles. And the studio were like, no way. Like, this makes no sense at all. This is weird guy interviewing somebody. <coughs> and they were like, get straight into the cop story. And I was like, oh, great, okay. So I had to rejuggle the whole story around. And then when we shot it and they saw it, they were like, hey, let's try putting the audience at the beginning. And I was like, oh, what a great idea. You know, <laughs> you know, wish I'd have thought of that. you know, Which I actually like because it's more kind of European or Asian. Um, but again, I changed certain elements of the story and some of the transitions. I've done some really nice transitions mm. from the original, uh, the way it was shot, like the, the original, the copy's watching the TV and it transitions to a TV in the room of Carl Watkins and you get to see Carl Watkins' whole room. Uh, with all the children he's got he got children's booties pinned to the walls and uh you know in the place he's just like a, a a child porn kind of nightmare you know what i mean he was just a really creepy character and establishes a lot without him saying anything whereas now in the cut all you see is an envelope and this guy scurrying into frame um so it, mm-hmm. it took out some of the kind of like um the poeticness of it if you like you know it know sounds again lofty but um no i was um <clears throat> with the the look of it and also with the writing using um, Dickens in there a lot uh, and the religious stuff, you know, I really researched uh, Ecclesiastes and some of the, the lines from the Bible to really make sure it kind of it worked, but also the Dickensian stuff as well. I was trying to give it a bit of gravitas because I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a moron, really, so I was trying to do that. Just add uh, to
2: what you were saying, it, it really does actually work very well because you're you're introducing something that hasn't appeared in the Hellraiser series before. It? It's the Stygian Inquisition, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. And introducing that right at the very start, it's ideal. That, that's exactly where that intro should be. Oh, and yeah, then because and... the audience know what's what and uh, what to expect.
1: Originally, the way it was written was Originally, what happens is in the original, the original original script I wrote years ago was it starts off with Watkins being audited. So it's like 15 minutes of the whole process. And then it cuts to a cop knocking on the door, uh, like a cop pulling up. And he's he's looking, he's he's going around the areas and the houses and he's kind of looking for this car. Watkins, have you seen this kind of man? And he knocks on the door of the uh, of the the, the house And he said, I'm looking for this man. And they go, oh, yeah, we can tell you about him. Come in. And then the idea was to do another 20-minute audit. So it's like you – and the the idea was that the audience would go through this 15 minutes of like, oh, my God, what the hell is this disgusting thing we just watched? And then when the cop goes in, have the audience go, oh, we're not going to do this again, are we? And go, yeah, yeah, we're going to do it again. (laughs) We're going to do the whole thing again. You know, and see if they could like, stomach it kind of thing. But then as the audit happens, something goes wrong. And you think that he's – um, you think what's happening is that they're tasting innocence. And that's what's kind of making them sick and making them ill is that it's innocence. It's pure innocence. But it turns out he's the most darkest of them all. You know what I mean? He's worse than any anything they've ever encountered. But the idea was to make you believe that it could be innocence, which is why Jafil steps in and says, no, send him back, send him back. Mm-hmm. You know, you think – Hopefully, you, you think that he's a he's a good man. He's done the right thing. You know, he's not uh he's not a bad guy. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of people who've said, "Oh, you know, it's obvious. It's obvious. He's the preceptor. He's obviously the preceptor." But we kept showing it to people all the way. I, I screened it to a bunch of people and said, and I'd stop the movie twenty minutes in and go, "Who's the who? You know, any ideas on who the killer might be?" And they all thought it was the other brother. They all thought it was the clean-cut mm-hmm. brother. So when people, so I love when people are online going, "Oh, I could totally see it was him, man!" Like I knew straight away. It's like you're a lying sack of shit. But <laughs> so those people who say, "I saw Scream and I knew it was, you know, I knew it was the two guys," it's like you're a liar. Yeah.
2: Films like that and Scream um, it's only ever really your best guess. Yeah, because you never really know until it's been revealed.
1: I mean, I did point the leave. There are there are there are hints in there. Obviously, if you look, he gets mm-hmm. the he gets the biblical quotes right every time. And then there's a thing where he talks about the lights. He says I get migraines. You know, it's like oh yeah, so he's getting migraines. You know, religious stuff. You know, like yeah, it's, it's a little bit obvious, but uh, you know, hey, now what can you do? So it's just when you know what to look for.
0: Yeah. I personally didn't it, get it's a bit like actually just like Scream, where you sort of raise the possibility of it being him, and then dismiss it. Yep. So, it, so it then becomes a twist, and you go, oh shit. I That's why people <laughs> yep.
1: people comment on it without watching the film because there's actually a, I thought a fairly cleverly written scene where she's in the car with him and she says you know do you have any you now did you have you reported this and he said oh you know only this and she says more about that line from Dick Dickens and he says well you know I didn't think it was now did you it's his most popular book in the world after all and then the guy said you know, the brother said I haven't found anything so every time you thought it was like aha we've got him it's like the, he was. Either unserved it before or uh, had come up with something. So I tried along the way. So always, it's a bit annoying when people are like, they just go, "It was so obvious that it was him," but uh, I didn't think it was. I thought I, uh, I put enough kind of like hid enough where we didn't kind of give it away that he could just be a really, really good guy that he wasn't innocent.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to mention Paul T. Taylor, who I yeah. thought was a really good pinhead in this. Yeah. Like, in a way, the role of pinhead's a bit of a poison chalice, because if you take it, you're going to be compared to Doug Bradley. But I thought that he did a really good job of making the role his own. Uh, <coughs> like, what were you looking for in your pinheads?
1: Oh, I, t- I told Paul straight away when I hired him, I said, you're, you know, you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, mate. I said, you know, I said, uh, you're going to be hated and loved. Uh, and it was actually after my turn in No More Souls, somebody briefly for a second said, Hey, have you thought about playing Pinhead? And I was like, Oh, are you mad? I'm already, I'm already, you know, public enemy number one. They'll absolutely murder me if I play fucking Pinhead. Um, what did I look for, honestly? Um, <clears throat> first and foremost, uh, it's weird. If you hire a plumber tomorrow, right, you know, when a plumber comes to your house, you don't say, "Okay, I've got three plumbing exercises for you to do here before you plumb my kitchen. So show me that you can fix a tap. Show me that you can do this. Show me you can do that. So when I saw Paul's audition tape, I was like, oh, this guy can clearly act. You know, he's an actor. He can clearly act. And he'd actually auditioned. We had them audition for the role of the order, so we didn't tell him it was Pinhead. Um, so he did the auditor and he did it with an English voice. And uh, so straight away I was like, oh, clearly the guy can act. That's a done for. And I know I can direct him. Secondly, it was really 5050 physically how his face looked. And I saw what I saw was the guy who looked a little bit like Peter Cushing, you know, um, or Ray Feiner got kind of a square jaw. And I just said straight away, the makeup look really nice on him. I can I can make the makeup look Doug Bradley-esque, it will look like Pinhead. You know, um, he has a very similar bone. He, actually, Doug has a very rounded face, and we square out his jaw, but I just thought Paul had strong features. And thirdly, he was really enthusiastic. He bought his own Hellraiser box, like you showed me your Hellraiser box at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> you know, Paul, on his audition tape, he'd figured out it was a Hellraiser movie, and he'd got his Hellraiser box with him and his little Pinhead yeah. character. So I thought you know what this is going to be a three-week shoot that's going to be really hard to do I need everybody to just be really enthusiastic and really into it and that's what Paul had he was really bubbly and really kind of like he was jazzed um and I thought you know he's not gonna be sitting in a corner moaning and grumbling and saying oh well you know I should be doing this and I should be doing that and why am I getting paid this he was just excited to be there and um so uh, I, I knew he'd do a good job and um there were times he, he he got a little bit he'd get a little bit big on set occasionally he'd start to ramp up and we had kind of a little code word i would just do that one line from star wars that Peter cushing says to uh to princess Leia when he says you know you're you're far too trusting you know when he says that you know to her you know you're, you're yeah. something you know it's far too far away for us to make it. Dis- just you know and i would just go to, to paul if he's getting a bit bigger i would go you you're you're far too trusting and he would immediately bring it down and i'd go He's a powerful character who you don't have to scream, you don't have to shout. You're Pinhead, everyone's listening to you, and your face is already doing so much work that the merest brow lift will do it. And um, and I said, you know, how tall is he? How lean is he? Is he thin? And uh, all those kind of came into play. But he, he knocked it out of the park. I thought he was a fantastic, he did a fantastic job and had a lot of pressure on his shoulders, obviously, because I mean, uh, you know, Doug, Doug's established that character and owns that character and is Pinhead and is the voice of Pinhead um but i think if you're going to have a second choice then uh i think paul's pretty bloody good and uh clearly that's been the case because everywhere you look i've never seen a a nasty comment about paul mm. um the only people who ever had a problem with paul and said anything nasty were people from the from doug's camp um but uh fans seem to like him i mean he certainly uh he certainly enjoys his fair share of uh, signing eight by tens and doing all that stuff, and mm-hmm. I think he, he's relished playing the role. And uh, I, I really, I really hoped that they would call him maybe if they did a, a you know a, a new show because he's a young guy and he could do it. And um, yeah, I was very happy with what what Paul did, and a and a thoroughly nice guy as well. Just a nice guy, <laughs> a really genuinely nice guy who turned up and was scared and worried and had a bit of a panic attack on the first day and you know it was just uh he just wanted to do good or he was like please you know i just to i just want to do good please sir you know but uh yeah i thought he did great and he and he that's why as well when i designed his costume and his makeup i made a few little changes to his costume and to his makeup because i felt he should have his own makeup and his own costume that belonged to that that version of pinhead
0: I was watching the blu-ray earlier today and this is something that i've never seen on a horror blu-ray before a gag reel which i thought was great fun now i i, I never imagined everyone just having a bit of a laugh on set i, I figured it would always be a kind of all right we've got to keep a grave tone like was it like, are horror films always like
1: that where it's just a good like a good a good laugh while you make them uh yeah use well usually the laughs come out of the most ridiculous situations you know what i mean i mean it's I mean, I think actually if you look at the gag reel, most of it's me being stupid, usually, and me getting people to do stupid things, like usually in the middle of a take yelling dance or, you know, or just that. Um, I It's a bit like um, when I was a singer in a band, uh, I would say to the guys in the band, I would say, I'm going to walk up to you while we're playing a song and I'm going to say something. You should laugh at it like it's a joke and then we'll laugh and I'll laugh back at you. And they go, why? And I go, if the audience think we're having a good time, then they'll have a good time. You know what I mean? Like they'll feel like we're having a good laugh, even though it's bullshit. Um, but I, I think you try and make a set to be a light and happy environment. Shooting Hellraiser was judgment was fantastic. It was, it was an absolutely blazing experience. And I don't think there's a single person, there might be one costume assistant who probably had a bit of a problem on the film. Everybody else was so happy and had such a good time. Uh, testimony to that is i might be again i could be dreaming this but um the first weekend uh we had off the first saturday we shot for five days and then we had the weekend off i said to my producer i said we we own the camera right it's our camera and he's like yeah 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 it's, it's yours all weekend and i said look I don't want to just do uh, credits on black, you know, white letters on black credits. I said, we can let's shoot something. And he said, what do you want to shoot? And I said, I've got the typewriter. I'm the auditor. I said, we'll go in and we'll just type some stuff. And I'll put put the names of the credits on the thing. We'll burn the pages. And I said to the DP, I said, do you mind coming in? Just me and you will come in for a couple of hours on Saturday. And we'll shoot the typewriter and we'll shoot an opening credit sequence. We'll shoot light bulbs and all that. And he was like, no, no, I can do that. So I roll in on the Saturday and uh, I get there and there's like eight people there, eight nine people grips and electric, and I was like said to my producer I was like, "What's going on? Why like, did you pay the guys? Uh, you know?" He's like, "No, no, no." He so said they they heard you were doing it and they wanted to come in for free because they are having such a good time. Uh, yeah. And then it happened every weekend and we shoot inserts and, you know. So yeah, I think sometimes uh you know, and I'm I'm pretty stupid, uh, you know. So I would I would do silly things and like like. This, <laughs> like you can't tell on the gag reel, but there's this thing when Randy's coming into the building with his gun and stuff, and, the, and someone walks up to him with a, a, a bag and, like, a, a, an orange and an, a, a can of Pepsi, and it's his mum. His mum came to visit. So I said, I said, Quick, here, grab this. Halfway through the day, like, go and give him his lunch. And she's like, what? I said, just don't give him his lunch. So, like, she walks in and she's like, I've got your lunch for you, sweetie. And he's like, ah, uh, what, what are you doing? You know, like, you know, it's just silly stuff because – why not? You know, I think the crew need to enjoy themselves while they're out it. And sometimes shooting, especially shooting horror stuff, it can be pretty, um, pretty gross stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, when we did the audit, when we did the spitting and the uh, you know, the licking and yeah. the spitting, I had two grips. Two grips. Grips are usually the biggest. You know roughest looking dudes on the film they're the ones who carry everything i had two grips walk off set and say i can't be here for this and i had a girl almost pass out you know what i mean they were where this is this is crazy you know even though they knew it was egg yolk we were using just egg egg white you know whites of eggs um people were like this is fucked up you know and trust (laughs) me it's supposed to be a lot worse than what you saw but um no i think uh so, yeah, so when we're actually shooting, I would actually say to my script supervisor, gag reel, gag reel, or I'd say to her, I'm going to do something stupid now. I'm going to, you know, like um, like that last take with Paul that we did when, uh, you know, we're talking, you know. You know, uh, we shall seek out the souls of the innocents. And he says, So those are the souls we shall seek out first. And I go, Yeah, so let's get at it then, eh? And he's like, Yeah, mate, let's do it. I just I think it's always funny when you see these characters that are supposed to be menacing and horrifying suddenly break and say something in a very normal way. You know, to me, it's quite funny. I, lo- I love that one where Paul uh, just goes, Oh, I've forgotten my lie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, you know, you know. You know it's, I think, I think, uh, Again, in the same way that if you watch a band and you see the people on stage playing and they're having a good time, it makes you think, oh, they enjoy doing that. I would want people to watch Hellraiser Judgment, a pretty intense movie with some pretty gross stuff in it, but then hopefully watch the gag reel and go, oh, it looks like they had a good time on that. I think the, yeah. the, one thing, the two things I'd like people to take away watching it are, oh, they look like they had a good time, and B, that was made by somebody who really gives a shit. That was made by a guy who really mm-hmm. he gave a damn about a razor and, and wanted to do something a bit different. And, I mean, I, I hung it out there. I mean, I didn't know people would take the Auditor. And playing the Auditor as well, I mean, Jesus Christ, the stick I got for that, you wouldn't believe. Some people were like, how dare you play the Auditor? You're so arrogant and, you know, how, who does he think he is? And clearly he's sending a message to Doug Bradley that he's, you know, it's like – this thing couldn't be from my mind, you know. In fact, originally I really looked forward to the idea of me and Doug having scenes together, you know. And it's not like I'm not an actor; I haven't acted before. I had acted. I, I did come from an acting background, so it wasn't like I was, you know, saying I want to be the lead guitarist of Van Halen and I don't know how to play. You know what I mean? I think I, I mm. can I can act, and I knew what I could do for the role.
2: The auditor character certainly comes across well, and like the the face design, that's the heavy shades that were being worn there but i always interpreted it as something like akin to like say when brad bird is voicing edna mose in the uh, incredible series like like sometimes some a director can step in and, and play a role but
1: well, sometimes it's easy as well because it means i don't have to cast it so i didn't have to cast it in that i knew that i could do the makeup early and design the mm-hmm. makeup because it was only a secondary character and we were shooting in oklahoma so we couldn't afford to fly actors to L.A. to get them head cast. So I knew by me doing it, I could do the makeup in advance and prep it and it would fit me and everything else. Secondly, um, you know, uh, I knew I'd do it for, for scale. <laughs> you know, I was there all the time so we could do inserts and additional photography if we needed to. Um, and I think I had a pretty a, a good idea of how odd the performance to be anyway. Uh, and, it, again, it just took more pressure off me and that I didn't have to – I wasn't dealing with another unknown quantity, you know what I mean? So often, yeah. you know, people often wonder why directors will cast the same actors again in films, you know, like why Tim works with Johnny and people like that. Sometimes, yeah. you know, filmmaking is a struggle, even at a higher budget level. And if you have an actor you've worked with and you know what they can do and you know their the pros and cons, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you can get to a real sticky situation sometimes with um, – with actors, uh, you know, so um, I, again, it was one of those things where I don't have to work this character. I mean, it, obviously it was a lot of work for me and it, it necessitated me coming very, very early some days off the clock to get ready. And then I would have to be in makeup and directing while Paul was getting his makeup on. Mm. Um, so it was quite odd for the cast and crew to be directed by a guy with slashes all over his face you know what I mean and uh and I'm very hands-on so I'm dressing the set and I'm kind of hanging chains up and all of that but um it just meant I was there kind of all the time and uh and and again the wardrobe fit me we knew what I you know because for those characters we 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 did the wardrobe you know we did the wardrobe for you know the auditor and for the butcher and the uh the surgeon and all those characters
0: I've seen you're quite active on Instagram, but I believe you're not on Twitter, right? Which I imagine Twitter is where one gets the, uh, the very shit end of the film discourse.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't, Uh, I look, I hate, I hate social media, the very, very, anyway, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of social media full stop. Instagram, uh, and if you look at it, it's really just pictures of makeup effects. I don't really post pictures of any of my family or my life. Um, And honestly, I do that really because it serves um, people who who purchase or buy art from me. Um, So I I do it really for that thing. I would say that on every given week, I am, uh, I would say two or three times a week, I consider shutting down Instagram (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and saying I'm done with this but and I and I only here's the key to Instagram I've discovered I only follow about 90 people uh, and I've had to stop following so many people because I don't mind people posting certain things but then when they post political rants or stuff that I just find utterly offensive and I don't know why they would do it because to me it's such a it strikes such a uh, you know a yes or no kind of a, you're in my camp or you aren't uh, that it, I find it offensive so uh I, I i do it purely for art you know and that's the only reason i do it uh and, and and what's been very nice is that people have written to me about um about judgment and just said hey man just want to say thank you very much and i like, mm-hmm. really appreciated it so uh it's it's the very least i think i think just being a casual instagrammer is the very you know is dipping your toe into it but yeah i certainly couldn't yeah, I haven't done my. I haven't got an OnlyFans page yet. Yeah, I should
2: make it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, but things have been become very, I think, uh, partisan in recent years. It's I'm you're either with us or against us that. mentalities, I mean, but everywhere.
1: I'm just so shocked that people would be that bold to say certain comments. And it's like, especially when you're, you know, like uh, the people even in effects have been, it, and I've been like. You're, you're an effects artist. Why are you saying that? If you if you think that, then mm. why don't you quit effects and go and be a politician and go and make a change? Stop just blotting on about it. I mean, I do, you know, like I speak to my my father's a, an 81-year-old guy who sits and watches the news all day long, you know. So it doesn't take him more than two minutes of conversation before he's literally telling what's wrong with the government and everything else and who's, you know, corrupt and who's this. And I just say to him constantly, why do you keep going back to a well that's polluted? You know, why would you keep going back there? Um and and the and the horror industry and the horror community are very same. I mean, never will you deal with a more polarizing community of people in the horror community. They're very uh virulent about what they about what they like and what they don't like. Um, you know, um, you know, regarding Hellraiser sequels, regarding any movie sequels and remakes and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've always had the same opinion as like people ask me, What do you think about remakes and what do you think about reboots and blah 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 and i'm like well look nobody's gonna come along in the night and steal your original copy of whatever it is you like you know like if you're a fan of texas chainsaw massacre no one's gonna come in the night and take your toby hooper version away you'll always have it so if someone's gonna make another one then it's a job for somebody for a few months and they make a film and i'm sure there's passion behind it and you're either gonna like it you're either gonna love it or or you're gonna hate it so if, you know, just wait until it comes out and have an opinion then. You know, in that respect, because mm-hmm. Hellraiser's
0: obviously got a remake coming up. I mean, uh, I sh- which I assume you'll be watching. I assume we'll be watching it too. Uh, now, I know the idea of it being made in no way bothers you, but uh, are you kind of like, are you optimistic about what about the remake? Because I know there's been talk of one for fucking years, isn't there?
1: I mean, I mean, I've got I've got several feelings on this. I mean, obviously, definitely, there's a, there's a personal kind of like. Wow, it would have been nice to have got a call, you know what I mean, just to get a call would have been nice, even just to maybe talk about the effects would have been nice, like I feel like i I did the work and I put it in there, and I think I was delivered, so why not give me a call? you know it's like but i understand uh, and then i I look at what they're doing and I, I have my opinions i mean and obviously there's a lot of kind of like uh people trying to get information and grasp and and and, and take two and two and get six out of it, you know, and who's directing it and who's producing it and who's doing the effects and who's in it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, again, the film's either going to be good or bad or really, really good or really, really bad. I mean, it'll fall somewhere in there. Right. Oh, um, I, 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 at first I was very excited because I thought, Oh, this is going to be a high budget affair because it's David Goyer you know, and, and Goya's a very, very mm-hmm. high pay- powered and high paid screenwriter. Um, and then I thought, you know, a director of some note, you know, in uh, in the director they had. But then all of a sudden, I noticed we were just shooting the whole film in Serbia, um, with all Serbian cast and you know mainly and crew. And that that worried me because you don't really go to Serbia to make a, you know, when you've got a, a large amount of money. Um, and and then we're, we're we're premiering on Hulu, which doesn't really, you know. Uh, bode well but uh but again i mean hey you know sometimes great things come in small packages so we'll see um on a technical level i saw a picture of the box that the uh the um actor actress actor person playing penn was holding and i thought that was terrible i have to say i mean i think the hellraiser box to me is an absolutely perfect design i didn't find it it was designed by a brilliant uh designer called simon Says, who uh you know uh, rest in peace kind of thing but uh beautiful design to me that wasn't broke so why fix it you know and why change it to me it feels a bit arrogant to change that beautiful beautiful puzzle box design but again sometimes a new broom wants to sweep clean but I mean I like I like the ritual I thought that was a very cool and creepy movie so yeah I'm optimistic I'm curious to see um but at the same time I think does it mean that in the comfort of my own home, if I watch it and it's really good, I'll be like, oh, that's really, really good. You know, like I'm really wish I could have worked on that. And if it's really, really bad, do I go, you know, maybe now people will like judgment more than my movie, you know, that movie, but I don't know. So uh, yeah, I'm, 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 um I'm pulled, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pulled here and back and forth about how I should feel about it. Um, Some days I, I don't want to know nothing about it. Some days I want to know everything. Other days I couldn't give a poo, you know, and other days I'm just like, I'm morbidly curious. I am curious to see what the Cenobites look like, you know, and uh, stuff like that. But again, it's, uh, I do think that director, you know, is a a pretty good storyteller. So uh, we shall see, right? I mean, it's exciting. At least least it's out there, you know, and it's uh, it's, it's a continuation. I certainly wasn't that impressed with Candyman, the new Candyman. I think, Uh you know, I think we got it right with the first Candyman, so... Something, something I was mentioning earlier, the Judgment sequel. Yeah, what yeah. You, the Judgment sequel. That was really, honestly, as we came to the end of shooting the movie, um, the studio were kind of like very excited by the dailies and saying, you know, this turns out good. We, we might be interested in uh, maybe you know, carrying this on, uh, and obviously I was utterly thrilled with that. And really, the idea of uh, the concept of a of a sequel was was nothing more than probably sitting in a bar having a drink saying, well, what would it be and what would we do with it kind of thing, you know. So the the, the idea for me was that, you know, Pinhead, who's been banished, you know, back on Earth, is his homeless character. And really the movie would kind of like have two themes, really. You're following him kind of like... Maybe he doesn't remember who he is at first. He's almost Jason Bourne-esque that he doesn't know who he is, and then kind of like he's getting to grips and kind of remembering what he was. And basically, he wants to find his way back. And then the, a new pinhead or a new, uh, you know, head of the Gash has been brought in, and the auditor is, uh, you know, trying to work with this character, but not, it's not, it's not working out. So the auditor is leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for you know, the, the Pinhead, the original Pinhead character, the Paul Taylor Pinhead, we'll call him for this reason, you know, leaving a trail of breadcrumbs to lead him uh, so that he can come back and uh, and regain his crown and then hopefully have a face-off between two Pinheads, you know what I mean, or two head Cenobites, you know what I mean? That was, that was really the idea. It seemed like the logical way to go, um, but obviously it'll never happen now. But... The only other thing is is that I own the character of the auditor. The auditor was created two years, three years before uh, Hellraiser Judgment. So there is always potential that I could do something with that, whether it would be a book uh, or, um, you know, maybe a short or, um, you know, maybe, maybe down the line somebody gets excited by it and says, you know, there's a lot of fan interest in this character now. Nobody's ever looked at doing an auditor movie. And, you know, I'd be interested in doing that, whether I played it or somebody else played it, I don't know. But uh, I think there's a – if the character is strong enough, you could do something with it. You know what I mean? As a fellow Brit,
0: when you hear the order for Gash be said, do you snigger? Yeah, of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> the, order, the order of the bloody fanny, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I've always had a problem with the order of the Gash. It's always made me laugh. Absolutely. You know, like uh, you, you can't, right? I mean, I just have. I used to have a mate of mine who was from Lancashire who, uh, you know, and I apologize to all of the female listeners in here, but his favorite comment was to walk into a nightclub. You know, you'd walk in and go, oh, you know, you know, I'd say I'll, I'll meet you in the club in a minute or I'll meet you at the bar and I'd go to the bathroom and I'd come out and I'd say, how is it? And he'd go, oh, chop full of gosh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to tell you, by the way, I am a, I'm actually technically an honorary Scot, so there you go. Oh, cool. The reason being, I did a, I did a TV show in, uh, in, uh, in Scotland for years for scottish television uh creepy strange tale do you remember and this isn't the show but do you remember you remember the show rabsy nesbit do you remember Rab C. yes C. yes i do. do you remember the young character the, the the kid who was like not a kid but was a grown-up guy who ended up becoming like was unfortunately I think so yeah yeah i did a tv show with him and It was like a, a kid's tv show and uh i did like two animatronic characters so i would go up every week and um John Stott was the co-producer of it and I would go up and we shot all over Scotland and um and I grew up watching Gregory's girl so so ah, uh, Gregory's girl so so I learned to speak my Scottish accent of watching Gregory's girl because that's how yeah, it was like hey 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 lady easy with the sugar take it easy so when I was up in the show doing <laughs> doing the show I would Actually, quite a lot of the time, just rolled into a Scottish accent and and tended to chat all the time. And it was was brilliant. You know, it's kind of one of those things I just did uh, automatically. And one time we were shooting up there and uh, we were all having lunch. And John Stott said, "Uh, I want to address the coup for just a moment, if that's okay." And he said, "Uh, it's about Gary Tunicliffe. And he said, Gary, will you stand up? And I stood up and he said, "Uh, we've all noticed that you will speak with a Scottish accent from time to time. And I said, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I apologize. He went, no, 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 no. We've all listened to it. And it's actually quite a bloody good Scottish accent. So we've all decided that you, from now on, can be an honorary Scot because your accent's actually quite nice. And I was, I was really taken with this and quite, felt quite good about myself. So that – and we were shooting in Glasgow. So that night I got into a cab to go back to the airport. And I jump in the uh, cab and the driver goes, uh, oh, where, where to, pal? And I said, it's uh, to the airport police, pal. He's like, I'm near border. He said, "You're yeah, a Scottish Salvation. I'm a good Terry. Are you a wee fella? You sharing with wee fella? You know what wee fella what you're doing there?" And I said, uh, uh, um, I'm, "I'm terribly sorry. I don't understand." He goes, "Oh, you're not fighting Scottish. You bastard! Lying <laughs> to me, you cheeky shit!" You know, <laughs> it all fell apart when I couldn't deal with the old Glaswegian. <laughs> you know, so I've got my lilting Edinburgh accent quite, you know, my lilting Scottish accent okay, but... I
2: have to say it's, it's, it's quite a good accent. So I've certainly, in some heavy production movies, I've certainly seen worse Scottish accents.
1: Braveheart. Like say, mine was just like the... Again, I think if you watch Gregory's Girl, if you've got to do a Scottish accent, I think watch a wee bit of Gregory's Girl, watch a bit of uh, Trainspotting, and, uh, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. those two are, you know, don't watch some of the other ones where people are just like, what? what on earth are you doing there? But let me ask you a question, David. Hi. Can you say purple burglar? Purple burglar. Yeah, it's hard for a scholar, right? <laughs> you really have to enunciate it. And, you know, a lot of people go purple burglar. It's not an easy phrase to say for a Scot. I know that. But um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I have a great affinity for Scotland, but um, yes, I, like you, always giggled like a churlish 13 year old. Winston would go, The Order of the Gash.
2: (laughs) (laughs) See, I have to say that I found it out from reading this because it's never mentioned in any of the films. And I found out about it from like reading the uh, sort of extra material and going onto the, the wiki page for Hellraiser. And I remember a night out with David when I first told him The Order of the Gash. Really? And you just. Mate, you just burst out laughing. You had a proper laugh for a while.
1: For a while, it wasn't going to be called the Stygian Inquisition. I did think about calling it, you know, the uh, the League of the Minge or something, you know, like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the Minji Explorers or something. I don't know. You know? <laughs>
0: well, I, I've got a quick question. I've always wondered about. It's a particular effect in Part Six? You pro- you might not. This might not be one of yours. The bit where the guy tries to intimidate his, intimidate the main dude by shooting himself, right, always struck me as, stu- as stupid. But there's there's a really interesting sound effect where you hear this like fist punch as the bullet goes through his head. I was wondering when it comes to things like Foley work, do you know do you know how that how something like that ends up happening?
1: Yes, Foley work. Honestly, it's like one of those things. It's like uh, you get what you pay for. You know what I mean? And sometimes they will use stock sounds because. The best way to do Foley work, obviously, is to do it live in the studio, you know, and like have a, a, a great Foley artist where they come in with the the tray of vegetables and the and the shoes and the, the scratchy things and all that. But so often now, it's just like it's it's cut and play sound effects. So it's like you know, what have we got? You know, and obviously they you know they'll, they'll find things and they go, oh, that sounds okay. And oftentimes, it's also it's like um, again to to use a uh, you know a, a music industry thing. It's amazing how when you're in a band and you're, you're recording a demo and it sounds so great in the studio when the guy's mixing it, you know what I mean? You're like, you know, they're playing it to you on their speakers and on the deck and you're like, we sound fantastic. And then they give you a cassette or, a, you know, it would be a digital thing, you know, you, and you sit in your car and go, we sound like shit. Now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> sometimes the way it sounds in the studio, uh, you know, it doesn't sound quite the same playing through regular speakers, so uh, I don't know the effect you're uh, you're talking about. I can't say. You're talking about Hellseeker, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. The guy, yeah.
1: The, guy, the guy shooting himself to scare him, it just always struck us as really funny. I can't <clears> imagine <throat> any reason to ever go back and watch Hellraiser Hellseeker ever again in my entire life. One funny thing I can tell you about Hellraiser Hellseeker, you know the scene when he's, um, he's on the floor and he's got the lamprey eel coming out of his mouth? Yeah which we did all practically. It was all practical. I'll never forget when we were doing that. Dean Winters farted when he was doing it. It was hilarious. He just, obviously he'd been clenching and holding it in. And suddenly he's writhing around on the floor and he just lets rip this fart. And I remember it was one of those things where I think certain actors will own it and just be like, Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And Dean just chose to go with the, no, that never happened. You know, it just never happened. But it was like one of those things where we were like, did he just, did he just fart? You know, like a massive fart on there. You know, and uh, you know, you know. I think we all, you know, again, we've all, we've all clenched and held things in, and then the idea of having to spasm around and yeah. on a, a lamprey. Obviously, something got out, but I'll never forget in the middle of this very intense scene, a, a, a raucous fart being ripped out. But um,
2: that would have been brilliant for a gag reel for Hellseeker. Oh, absolutely. I don't think anyone, <laughs> ever,
1: anyone ever did have, gag reels on any of Hellraiser movies, which is funny because. Funny things did happen. I think there were a couple of gag shots on, on Deader. There's a scene where I think Doug did something and, or Carrie, uh, yeah, Carrie Wurra threw a light shade at Doug and I think she threw it and it almost hit him. So she got really worried about that. But yeah. Carrie Wurra on Deda, she was hilarious. She was constantly cracking up. And I think yeah. the way she maintained her emotional uh, level was by either giggling like a lunatic or screaming and crying, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it worked for her in that way. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I always think it's not. I always think it's again. If you see a, a very intense horror film, I mean, I think you know, I wouldn't want to see a gag reel on The Exorcist. It would ruin it for me. You know what I mean? But I think sometimes. Uh, I think like I say, I think the idea of showing the audience that the crew had a good time, and sometimes like yeah. I say, it's fun to see. It's like that classic photo of Boris Karloff drinking a cup of tea with Jack Pierce doing his makeup. It breaks the mm-hmm. uh the illusion yeah, a little bit. you know and gives it a sense of reality.
0: Um, It's perhaps a strange parallel. It's also like if you ever see a BDSM clip and uh, they have uh, people in it beforehand telling you about how happy they are to do it. And I guess that's almost what the gag reel for a horror film is. I wouldn't know. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, we all know we all know a little bit more about you now, David, don't we? Uh, well, allegedly, thank, I, thank I've you. been told. Thank you, for, thank you for sharing that, David. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, uh, if I come out of Aberdeen, I knew where the dungeon is that you go to. <laughs> uh, when I
0: was a younger man, maybe, but um...
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a younger man's game that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting the fact that the the thing is I I was listening to um, your talk with Nick Vince and uh, you know about Hellraiser having such a shocking effect when it came out in 87 and I do think unfortunately now what's weird is that you look at the world of when Hellraiser came out and piercings and that kind of stuff and now everybody's covered in tattoos these days. Everybody's got Mm. piercings sticking out of all over their bodies and body modifications. So it'll be interesting to see how this new Hellraiser deals with that because what was shocking back then? Um, it's so it's it's not shocking now. That's why, in some ways, with mm-hmm. judgment, I, I didn't have big money to go for big shocks, so I kind of went for those intimate things. Like, what's the very worst thing that can I, I can I can do to somebody that's not um, reliant upon effects? You know, it's like being licked all over by a bunch of old ladies, you know, and then having them spit into a little vials and then pour that down your throat. To me, that was the most disgusting thing I could possibly think of. Yeah. Um, the you know um, and again the, the you know what, what somebody might look at the jury for instance in the judgment and go oh look that's just that's just titillation it's just nudity for nudity's sake but it was really meant to be a paradox that you've got these beautiful female bodies you know this from the from the head down and then they're you've got like, this head that's lacerating because like, they're
2: they were, so you're right they're missing all that flesh and it's like their their chin bone sticking out and it yeah. was it was that contrast of what you'd say would be titillating it's and like, grotesque
1: it's, it's almost like you know you're you going to a place and see somebody from behind and they turn around and it's a guy you know what i mean like you see long hair and her body and you go <laughs> oh turns around and it's a dude and you're like oh no so really with the jury it was like as a guy seeing this voluptuous naked flesh and then going could you would you could you still do the deed you know would you still want to do the deed with somebody like that so um what people just saw was uh, you know oh it's just nudity for nudity's sake wasn't it was meant to it was meant to challenge you um and secondly you know the reality is is when you've got no money on a film set uh cheap costumes look very cheap whereas flesh canvas the naked body drenched in blood or whatever just looks really really interesting it's far more interesting and i don't like full nudity i never have um that's why i had the girls in thongs i thought with the old ladies it was important to have them nude because i just again it, it, that really to me it was harkening back to my childhood of when you're like a five, six year old and granny comes over and gives you a kiss and you don't want to be kissed by granny. You know what I mean? It's, it's Bill and Ted when, you know, granny Preston yeah, yeah. you know, It's like, what can I do? has the worst version of that. Well now they're naked and now you're tied to a table. They're not just kissing you on the mouth. They're licking you all over. You know, it's like, uh, I, I was trying to do intimate something that was just downright creepy, you know, and mm. that's what I was trying to achieve. Um, uh, same with the, uh, the the assessor, you know, like to me, watching somebody eat, you know, and, and we've all done this. We've all been to dinner with somebody who just has no table manners and ate like a pig, and you just sit there thinking, I'm going to throw up. And that's what I wanted with that. I wanted this guy yeah. to gorge himself in front of you. It was almost a, a little bit like, um, you know, you asked about influences earlier on, David, that, like the cook, the FIFA the wife, and her lover. You know, it was kind of like Greenaway. I was trying to do something as Baroque and as crazy as that. I can't believe I just said Baroque. Uh, that's actually Clive Barker would always get that into a, into interviews. You'd always be like, it's so Baroque, you know, Baroque. But again, I was trying to go for that tone of that kind of lynch, you know, uh, you know, the, cook, the thief, the wife and her lover. Um, again, how do I add more control over the edit? I would like to have had just long moments of stillness, of just, you know, lingering on things a lot more rather than chopping it up the way it does. I actually have all of the footage from the audits on a drive um, downloaded onto a a massive terabyte drive. And I have said that the next film I do, uh, if I ever direct again, I will sit the editor to one side and I will recut a whole proper audit and, uh, you know, put on the internet or something. Yes, release the Toncliffe cut. We're starting the hashtag oh yeah yeah that would be hilarious yeah yeah release the, release the tonic clip and uh, you will really throw up when you watch
0: it <laughs> uh, this, this uh this really is the last question because i've got to i've got to nip away and uh, just well half an hour ago but but uh, what what comes next for you what comes next for me yeah, cause uh, I, saw, I saw you're working on dark harvest right now which is a fucking amazing book yeah. So I'm delighted to see that you're, you're going to be doing the effects on that.
1: Well, no. I mean, here's what happened. I was in Los Angeles uh, doing the effects on a little tiny film called Play Dead for Patrick Lucier, who I said that I will always work with no matter what. And a friend of mine I had dinner with, and he said, uh, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm going to go to Canada, and I'm doing a thing called Dark Harvest, working for an effects artist called Vincent Van Dyke, who's a brilliant young effects guy in his 30s. And uh, I said, what is it? And he said, it's this character called, you know, Sawtooth, you know, or, you know, the Doctober boy, as it's called, in the book. And, uh, and I said, well, oh, that sounds fantastic. And I said, well, if you need a makeup artist, you know, and he said, but you're retired. And I said, you know, the right project. And then he called me a couple of days later and said, would you like to come and meet Vincent? And I met with Vincent and we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, and Vincent was like, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, uh, possibly. And he said, "Yeah, know, it's going to be a lot of nights. And I went it's all I've ever done, you know. it's going to be, a, in, you know, it's a horror film, and I was like, it's all I've ever done, you know. it's taking care of one character and making sure it's cool, that's all I've ever done, mm-hmm. and uh, we had such a wonderful talk and chat, and I read the script and loved it, and the character they designed was fantastic, so I didn't design anything, let me just say, I didn't design and nothing at all, so I was just applying this one character, and I had the most fantastic experience uh, working with David Slade and the uh, and MGM and uh, went up to Canada and, uh, and did that. And, uh, um, working in Winnipeg, I'm very excited. I think it's supposed to come out September the 22nd of next year, but, uh, yeah, it was just, um, again, nothing to do with me. I didn't do it. I didn't apply it. I was just very fortunate to be the person who got to, to glue it on and do that and I had a really, really good time, which was, um, uh, you know, being mistreated by certain companies uh, over the years, it was nice to go and have a, a good experience and, and I can't say enough great things about Vincent Van Dyke and his team. They were fantastic. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, for me, um, I kind of, I go where the wind blows me really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm supposed to direct, I'm supposed to direct a, a clown horror film called Chlorophobia. Um, but that's got financing problems. I'm I've got a, Thing I, a couple of the things I've written um, which are kicking around but no one's chewing out but I mean I, I'm kind of like you know a bit of a cinematic mercenary really I'll go wherever they uh, wherever they send me so um, I've got I don't really like doing makeup effects that much I kind of like feel like I've been there seen it done it all and really the kappa the for that was when I did Gone Girl after I did Gone Girl and that one effect um, I was like I think I'm done I think I've done everything I wanted to do I you know, I, I did the Hellraiser character and felt like I did my work on that. I've got to work with David Fincher and uh, and not get yelled at and have him say some nice things to me. And I've worked with Tim Burton. I worked with Reni Harlan. I worked with Wes Craven, Joe Dante. You know, uh, got to work with actors like De Niro and Nick Cage and you know, John Travolta. You know, so I've had, I've had good experiences, bad experiences. Kind of seen it all, done it all. Got the t-shirts to prove it didn't feel like there was anything else to uh to really do so i wanted to concentrate on just kind of like uh art and just you know making model kits and just you know doing some writing and stuff like that yeah. yep.
0: Gary, thank you so much for coming on. This has been yeah. the most interesting interview I've ever been part of, and
1: we interviewed. I doubt them. that. So you see, you just. Also, uh, we, so that's
0: everybody say. We, <laughs> we interviewed a big boot hunter on this show, right? So, <laughs> this is the most interesting one we've done. So, uh,
1: thank you so much. This has been this has been really good fun, and. Uh, well, thank you, and, and and thank you for for putting uh, judgment number four on your list. I mean, it's it's thrilling for me. I mean. To be in the middle of the pack is amazing. I've even seen people put it as, like, number three, which blows my mind that yeah. the $350,000 little movie gets in there. And, I mean, and I understand that, you know, people tend to preface it with, um, it's you know, it's not the best, it's not the worst, or it's the it's the best of the sequels, which isn't saying much, they always say. But it's like, you know, uh, I'm glad that people... And I think what's really strange is it seems to have caught more of a following over the years. You know, more mm-hmm. people have gone back to him and gone, oh, yeah, it's not that bad, actually. Like, it's actually got some fun little moments in it. So I, I appreciate that. And moreover, I appreciate that people uh, liked what Paul did because I think Paul Paul did do a good job. But I think it um it stands it stands up there in the canon. And there were worse films and there are definitely better ones. I mean, that's always the funniest thing when people review it and they say, well, it's not as good as the first one. It's like... Well, hey, I never suggested it was going to be, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, you know, the first film is an utter and always will be a classic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the film mm-hmm. that got me inspired to, to you know, to, I wanted to do. I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I saw a movie with a character and said, I love this. I want to do that character. I want to work with Clive Barker. I remember vividly the first day I ever met Clive. You know, where I was, what he said, everything else. And it was an utter joy for me to meet that guy and to have some fantastic kind of hangouts with him when he was talking about opera and music and watching scribble drawings and just, uh, you know, Lord of Illusions and stuff like that. Um, You know, I I missed the fact that I, you know, f- lost connection with him over the years. You know, he was one of those guys that whenever you hung out with him, uh, that if he turned his attention to you, you felt like. He really was listening to you and interested in everything you had to say and, uh, you know, listened to it, and took it on board. Uh, amazing individual. Always felt inspired when I was around him um, just by his work ethic, that he was just working all the time. He would literally leave his house and think, oh, I need to go back home and start writing or sculpting or painting or doing something because, Jesus, that guy never stops, you know. Um, and I still think it's a shame that more of his work is not seen uh, you know, uh, cinematically, and he's being been brought to life, because I'd love to see all of the books of Blood, uh, you know, put there, uh, you know, on screen. But um, I uh, I consider myself very fortunate that I got to not only, you know, watch a horror film, a Hellraiser movie, and say, I want to do that, but then I got to work on it, do Pinhead, and eventually got to play a Cenobite, you know, and a Cenobite that seems to have become kind of like liked by some people. So... It's utterly thrilling for me. I, uh, I I can't I can't grumble, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm a very lucky person, and uh, I have to remind myself of that all the time. That's such a positive
0: note to go out on as well. I feel very yep. joyful, for <laughs> Professional. <laughs> so thank you very much. You're very welcome. All right. Check out OracleFilms.co.uk